when an abusive parent mostly neglected you, but then occasionally acted like they valued you, you probably had this very intense experience. I know the feeling too. A lot of us with childhood trauma know what this was like, of like, oh, finally they came around. My parent can see that I'm good and I'm worth loving, and I finally get to be safe and loved and taken care of. And if you're like a lot of kids with trauma, you got abandoned again, right? But what happens is what gets very big in your mind is that good feeling you had when there was hope. The hopeful longing that you felt. Maybe, maybe, oh yes, they love me. That became your comfort place. That became the secret chamber that you'd go to when life was hard and you felt lonely. And you know, the world on one side where it's scary and lonely, and then this place in your imagination where everything gets set right. This imaginary world versus the harsh real world primed you to crap fit. And that's a word I made up that means to fit yourself to crap, to fit yourself to unacceptable people and situations and use your imagination to fill in the huge gaps where things didn't make sense, where there was no love, but you found a way to see love. And it's so painful and disappointing when you've crap fitted your way into what you thought was a relationship only to get abandoned again. And my letter today is from a woman I'll call Mary Claire. And she writes, Hey, Anna, I'm 26 years old and I work in a law firm and I'm currently studying for a bar exam, which is in a month when I'm officially going to become a lawyer. I'm very much respected at my work and until now very successful at what I do. I have one strong friendship in my life and lots of other good friends, but the the other areas of my life are not that good, so let's dive into them, <laughs> says Mary Claire. My parents divorced when I was 13 because my father cheated on my mother all through their marriage with multiple other women and was emotionally abusive toward her and me also, and still is. I think I should mention here that he was actually married at the time they started dating and he left his previous wife for my mother. My father has gone, has some narcissistic tendencies, but I'm not sure if he really is one. His mother died when he was five and his father never visited him, so he grew up with an emotionally abusive grandfather. Throughout my childhood, I rarely have any good memories with him except living in constant fear if I did something to upset him. He would often yell at me without any apparent reason and it would give me the silent treatment since I can remember. Only times he would show me some love is when he was afraid of losing me, like the times when they were getting a divorce, or I was leaving for college, or I was sick, etc. My mother is a child of an alcoholic and very loving person, but with her own problems. She's pretty emotionally unstable and would often have bursts of anger and then would feel sorry and love bomb me, but I could say that I feel safe around her, unlike around my father. Okay. Now, when growing up, I had no structure. From the age of 15, I started smoking and drinking heavily on the weekends, staying in the clubs till the morning. My parents didn't really mind that, and both of them would really parent me only when I was meeting their emotional needs. So all of the above led me to having the anxious attachment style and a string of bad relationships, or more precisely, situationships, where I idolize the person I'm with and couldn't see them for the person they are and that they are mostly using me for whatever they lacked. 
For the past two years, I've been involved with a guy who I'll call John. We both knew um, each other for years, but I didn't think much of him until we officially met at a wedding. I found him very attractive and good looking, and he added me on Instagram and started texting me. He was so spontaneous and funny and easygoing, which felt like an oasis to me. But after the instant blow, I quickly realized that he's not interested in a relationship and that he just wanted to have some casual fun. I rejected that idea, and I told him directly that I'm not interested in that. And if, if that was the end of the story, I probably wouldn't be writing this email. So after a couple of months, we started occasionally replying to each other's Instagram stories and texting a couple times a week, which somehow resulted in me falling deeply in love with him. And then on his birthday, he asked me to see him for the first time. We had a couple of drinks and kissed. And after that, he sent me some strange long text where he said he crossed the line and that we shouldn't see each other and that he can't be in a relationship. Huh. I told him that's fine and we would, oh, that's fine, that's fine. And, and we again didn't speak for a couple of months and I moved on. And then he appeared again and triggered me in my obsession. And that time we started seeing each other again and this time having sex. The whole time he was giving me mixed signals like acting jealous when he thought someone liked me, acting protective over me, and saying that he can't imagine being with anybody else, but never labeling our situation. We were always supportive of each other, and he would talk to me about his traumas and his family issues. So I was thinking that that means he has feelings for me also, and is not just horny. On the other hand, I didn't want to seem desperate and start the topic of a real relationship. And I was playing the role of, you know, the cool girl. <laughs> yes. But after a full year of that, I, uh, that crap, I decided I will end things with him. We saw each other and I told him everything in person in, of course, a tiny little hope that he would maybe act right this time. Fair enough. And I told him that I wanted a committed relationship where I can have a partner and not just hookups with deep, long talks. I forgot to mention that he has never been in a relationship and he had one attempt with an older woman and he dumped her after a month because he just felt it wasn't right. He pretty much told me the same thing, which I understood as, I'm just not that into you. So the next day, I cried all day and decided I'm over it. <laughs> cool. The full month goes by and he got drunk, which he never does, and texted me that he misses me a lot, which he never did, and that he is not happy without me and all that goes with it. Again, we texted each other for days. He asked to go out with me just as friends, and so we did. He came to pick me up, and the moment I saw him, I felt happy as a puppy. We again had a couple of drinks, had a great time, but it ended on this, in the same spot last time. Him saying to me that he wants me very much, but that it's better for me to just move on. Still kissing me in the end, and that was yesterday. So my question is how to stop being delusional and crap fitting myself to these kinds of situations and establish my sense of worth because deep down I know this is bullshit, but still that tiny flame of hope is burning inside of me. Mm-hmm. Tiny flame of hope. Hope is the dope. <laughs> okay, Mary Claire, thank you. I've got it. I think I can help. Um, this guy is a type. He's a type and... Um, he, he doesn't have very much to give. And for girls who are raised with trauma and totally breadcrumbed by their own parents, 
and your dad cheating on your mom and your mom kind of living with the lie and all the shame of staying with a guy who does that and all that sort of like mindset that sort of soaked into the carpets and the drapes of the room where you grew up. Yeah, you got some bad ideas kind of planted in you. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. That it's not right for people to treat a kid this way. It's not right for a dad to treat the mom of his children that way. But here we are. A lot of us have grown up in some tough situations. I can absolutely see how your parents, like indifference to your needs and inability to keep you safe. Um, you know, why do we do this? I don't know. They call it repetition compulsion. <laughs> is it a compulsion or is it a blind spot? I call it crap fit. We just have this incredible capacity when people don't treat us well to blame ourselves and go, maybe it's just me and put up with it. And there is the problem. It's the problem isn't that he does this. The problem is that you stay around for more. That's the problem. The problem is that he can still call you and see you and he can try all these different drama scenarios where he's like, oh, I crossed the line or, oh, you know, we're such good friends. Oh, let me tell you my trauma, you know? So it sounds like you guys do have a friendship, like a friendship with benefits. And you have very politely remained quiet about your true needs, which is you want a relationship. You don't want a friend with benefits. And you thought maybe if you just went along with his agenda that he would come around and see how lovable you are. And the sad thing is that that, that approach very seldom works. Men usually will not fall in love with somebody who just kind of, um, you know, shuts themselves down. You know who people fall in love with? They fall in love with real whole people who are shining out all over the place. You and your real feelings, your real needs. Now, I realize that some people are so troubled at a given time, you know, they're having such a difficult time that their real feelings and real, real needs are a great big mess and nobody can love that right now. That could happen. But real love cannot occur when somebody is completely hiding who they are by pretending to be okay. For example, with a friends with benefits relationship and going, oh, I don't want, you know, I'll be the cool girl. I don't want to be, um, what, what was it? You were, you were, you know, you were afraid that you would be the bad person if you expected anything from him. And isn't that just so weird? Like you can, I, I, it's so easy from the outside to see where that idea got into you. Oh, you have needs, you bad girl. You know, that's just pathetic having needs. You should not need anything. You should just be very jolly and go along with this kind of half-assed, terrible relationship situation where he gets everything he wants. He's not concerned that you're not getting what you want. And believe me, he knows what you want. But we can't totally fault people for proceeding in a relationship that we agree to through our silence, through not saying where we're really coming from. So I'm so proud of you. You spoke up and said, I want a real relationship. And right, what happens? It ruins the relationship. That's the beauty of truth. If it's not a relationship, then the truth that you love somebody and you want a real relationship with them, if that ruins it, you did not have the thing you wanted. So it's so nice to kind of, you know, bring it out into the open. And as sad as it is to lose the hope that somebody's going to come around and love you, what feels better than that and bigger, you know, like a bigger compensation for that sadness is the good, clean feeling inside that you're back in the truth. You're not playing along with a lie. You're not pretending you're cool or it's fine. That's fine that he calls you when, it, you know, it sounds like he's just making booty calls. I really don't like him for this. You know, it's one thing when two people just want to fool around, but that's not really what it is here. You were primed by your neglectful and abusive childhood to just 
you know, to tolerate crap and to somehow make it work, make it work for everybody by shutting down your own needs. The jig's up. <laughs> it's not going to work anymore. You're, you've like caught yourself doing it and you're feeling the pain of it. And hallelujah, it's time to, it's time to have a good cry about all the losses and all the emptiness and all the mistreatment that's happened to you because you were so good at this. Being good at this saved your life. When a little kid knows how to, you know, believe that everything's okay, that's how they keep their spirit intact. And then comes this thing in young adulthood, and it sometimes goes on all the way through life. I'm not joking, you know, you're working on this now, this is very good. This comes in adulthood where you haven't stopped the crap fitting, you're still fitting yourself to crap, you're still believing irrationally that if you are a low self-esteem person who just puts up with bad treatment, that will make somebody fall in love with you. But like I said, the opposite is what tends to happen. People, they don't get that sense of, of strength and, and self-respect that is very attractive. So here's what you can do. Here's what you can do, Mary Claire. You can begin today. Today is a very good day to begin. You're still quite young. You're 26. Yay. There's so much time. So beginning today, you can cut off contact with somebody who cannot give you what you want. Here's the trouble. Like it would be so nice in theory, if we could be friends with, with, with people that we had been in love with, we're trying to get over them. We're, we'd like to keep them in our lives and be friends while we also meet somebody new. What happens? Our emotional energy is just like getting sucked out of us and into that person. And this guy, that's what I call an energy vampire, is people who they know they aren't going to give you what you want, but they like to give you just enough hope that you will keep letting them in. And sometimes it's about sex. Sometimes it's about validation for them. They just want to be adored like that. And then some people like really enjoy that moment where they go, oh no, I, I have crossed the line. I can't do it. Like it's, people have weird erotic fixations. They have weird things that make them feel valuable and important and seen. So our job is when that doesn't work for us is to stay away from those people, to use very good red flag detector vision to go, oh, I'm seeing signs that this person is not available. So in my dating course, if you take that course, maybe you've taken it, it starts where you write down exactly what you want in your life and in a relationship. You write it down. You take some time with this. Hundreds of things you can write down. And so you would be surprised how powerful it is to get clear what it is that you do want in your life. And then by definition, and also because you write it down, I cannot have this anymore. You know, I will not get together with a guy who's ambivalent about me. So it's okay for people to be ambivalent about each other at the beginning, but here's the trick. You don't get into the relationship with them while they're ambivalent. The way that you don't get into a relationship is you don't have sex. You can date somebody, you can get to know them, but you don't bond with them through sex until it has met your criteria of the level of likey, you know, they like you, they're committed to you. You set your own standards for that. And if you're somebody who goes, oh, nobody's going to keep that standard, they will actually. If it's your standard and you hold on to it, you will find the people who match your standards. They are out there. Right now, if you think everybody just would never put up with that, you're hanging out with the wrong people.
So people get to decide how they want their relationships to be. But you're a 26 year old woman, you would like to have a relationship, like a committed relationship. This is what you do. You do not have, give any of your emotional availability to people, to, to men who, or, you know, whoever it is you love, you know, you fall in love, you can't help who you fall in love with, but you don't give them your, your emotional availability. You don't give them your love. You cut it off. Sure, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt nearly as much as not doing that and not being able to have a fulfilling relationship because you spent two years, four years, seven years, whatever it is, wanting, waiting, pining, hoping, being cool, seeing if the love will show up and it never does, right? Don't be that girl. Hold yourself apart from that game. Stay very focused on what it is you want. You know, just radiate and shine what you want. Stay true to it. And yes, you might, you might not have a, a, a boyfriend for a year, maybe even two years. Can you handle it? Because if you keep getting into this one that matches your parent dynamic, the trouble is with these relationships, you can't just bide your time in them because they tear you down. They take it out of you. They wear you down. They make you ragged inside. They take away that bright, shiny emotional availability that healthy people can recognize. So you want to cultivate that. And you can have a wonderful life while you're not dating, while, while, you're, while that real thing has not come along. You can have friends. You can work on meaningful pursuits. You can become professionally accomplished, save money, you know, work on your health, get into hobbies, start a business. There's so many happy things to do in your life. And when you're a person who knows how to be happy, single, or in a relationship, you have it made. You will never have to hold on to a relationship just so you have somebody to hang out with. That's a very good goal. So I really wish that for you. Emotionally immature and vacant parents can really do a number on kids. And when a child takes responsibility to monitor a parent's feelings, keeping them feeling okay and worrying that, you know, whether or not everything's going to fall apart, they don't get the inner sense of security that's necessary to move out into the world like an adult you know, finding your tribe, making a living, discovering your talents and gifts. These are all so important to a good life. But when that black hole in your childhood drained away all the guidance, all the teaching by example, all the sense of structure that you were supposed to get, you can end up in your adulthood feeling like your life isn't real yet. And you're waiting, you're waiting for someone to come put you back on track back on the path of your actual life. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Jerry, and she writes, Dear Anna, what I would like to ask today is specifically about this whole concept of putting limerent thoughts into a sealed vault and away, as I have heard you describe. Now, this letter is going to go to some new territory after this, but I'm including it because it's important background. I'm using my fairy pencil here. I'm circling things I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's go through and I'm going to read you a part one and a part two of Jerry's letter. All right. She says, I find this difficult because of the phenomenon. When I say don't think of an elephant, what do you think of? So my question for you is how to really implement clearing and letting go of these thoughts completely. In the past few months of doing the daily practice, my limerence has definitely improved but I admit the thoughts still come. I've actually been resisting writing to you because deep down a part of me believes I found my twin flame. So if you don't know what twin flames are, it's a new age spiritual belief that 
some people have this other half of their soul that is in somebody else's body and they have to find that person. And unfortunately, it's often a way that people get obsessed, limerent on people they can't have. Oh, they're a twin flame. They're actually the other half of me. They just don't know it yet. And there are a lot of people who prey on people who believe that by selling them psychic services and things. So to help them keep believing this thing. So part of me believes I found my twin flame and I've been limerent in the past, but have managed to completely let go and move on from each of the people I've been limerent on. Except this most recent experience, I met this person for literally three hours on one day as a result of connecting on a dating app. I immediately deemed them the answer to my prayers and meditations. I've reached out to him three times over the course of two and a half years and he has not once responded. And I got super tangled up in this mess. I was stalking him on social media and spent my entire inheritance getting scammed by a psychic who claimed to, quote, bring us together. With your content and this practice, I'm beginning to experience glimpses of clarity from this fog, this entanglement. I'm beginning to make my first real friend in what feels like a long time. I'm starting to collaborate with midwives in the birth work realm and uh, applying for jobs in different fields, such as homesteading, homestead gardening. I'm going to attempt to be as clear. Oh, so, okay. So this is where I switch over. She wrote a second letter. She wrote me a letter. There was more. And um, I went ahead and took that part out. And now I'm going to go on to the second letter she sent when she had second thoughts about what she said the first time. Um, she says, I'm going to attempt to be as clear and straightforward in this letter to you because I have been living in such a fog that it has completely clouded my vision. Even when I wrote to you the first time, I was not expressing what is actually happening in my life. I do the daily practice twice a day and have been going to a few AA meetings and meeting people even though I'm sober. Hmm. I also made a daily practice buddy through one of your Zoom calls, so thank you. I currently am a nanny for a child and making barely enough for me to live, let alone pay down my massive student debt. I went to college for my dad and because of my dad and have spent my entire life trying to prove myself to him. He's gone most of my life, at least half the time, on, quote, business trips or work or something else. When he was home, he was yelling at me, demeaning me or cuddling me or saying, I love you. However, the I love yous were almost always paired with some accomplishment like a grade I made. At least that is how it seems to me. Now he and my mom are literally living in a mess. It is sad to watch my parents withering away like this in a falling apart house. As a child, my mom, in the best of her loving intentions, was constantly fearful, anxious, and afraid of my dad, although she depended on him for financial means. As a child, I mothered my own mom, and emotionally, I starved. Now I'm living on my own. I've been financially independent from my dad for three years now by working as a nanny and renting rooms. I've been trying to get the emotional love from the families I work for. It doesn't really work because that is transactional. Mm -hmm. And me giving and giving and giving, just as I have my whole life. That is still the role I play with my own parents as I'm emotionally maturing and they are staying children emotionally. I'm utterly exhausted. Which brings me to today. I'm emerging out of a fog of limerence, which has been sucking the life out of me the past two and a half years. Someone who had no interest in me, but I decided was my twin flame and all the spiritual entanglement that comes with it. I gave myself away to the idea of this person, financially to the psychic who claimed to bring us back together, and emotionally put all my thoughts toward the guy. I actually physically took a job where I thought he lived, which is where I live now. He's not here. 
just me, Anna, I was in dark deep. <laughs> but what I really want to ask you about today is how to help me actually live for myself and take a step toward a more fulfilling life for myself, financially, emotionally, relationally, and physically. I have two and a half more months until I complete my current nannying job. And after that, I can do something different. And I'm at the point now where it's time to start making those moves, reaching out, applying for jobs, etc. And I'm a bit overwhelmed and feeling abandoned as the family I nanny is starting to interview candidates for when I leave. I had the choice to stay and I'm choosing to leave even though I do not know what I'm going to do. I just really want to do something different. I'm so overwhelmed because I do not have something to fall back on financially and no backup place to go as I cannot go to family. When I actually sit with my heart, what I desire is in the evenings cooking dinner together with people. I enjoy being around and sitting at the table together. I desire to live where it is sunnier and warmer temperatures down south, accepting that this is just who I am. I really want to live simply with the land, quietly having a space of my own within a family. I would like to live with chickens and water a garden and cook at least one meal a day for others. I worry I don't know clearly enough what I want. I worry I have not really experienced being loved to the point where my gifts emerge. And this is what I really want. But how do I admit this as a 25-year-old? I'm caring for myself right now, but I would like to also to be cared for. The family um, I nanny for is so loving, but still, when all is said and done, I work 11 hours a day, and I know I'm worth more than this. While considering my options, I could apply to non-nannying jobs and continue renting a room. But I fear ending up lonely in the evenings again. I also created a workaway account, which I think is a place where you get jobs, where I'm honest about myself and my intention to live with a family as community daily, not as a nanny. I'm starting to reach out for opportunity here, and this is a step. I need to also be bringing in income to pay down my loans. I'm, leaning, I'm learning to embrace and own who I am and where I am at, at healing CPTSD and trust it is possible to be part of a reciprocal and harmonious home. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Okay, Jerry, I think I can help. This is a very complicated and interesting letter and situation you have here. So I'm glad you wrote to me again and shed a little more light on what was going on. And I think that the insight that you show about yourself that came through that second letter was really impressive, and I'm proud of you for that. Okay, um, so in your first letter, you, had, you said something that I just wanted to say may have been a misunderstanding. Um, where you said, I want to ask about how you put limerent thoughts into a sealed vault away. Um, it's a little different than what I say. I just say stop thinking them. There's no sealed vault. That's a, a, a metaphor or something. But you're not putting them away to take them back later. You're just disciplining yourself to stop thinking about it. All right? That's what you do to get over a limerent relationship. You stop talking about it. You stop thinking about it, you don't write about it, you don't keep pictures, and you discipline yourself to just stop getting that dopamine hit of returning and returning and returning to it. And um, they're really, you know, I teach you a lot of tools to deal with your emotions and all the stuff that comes up, and that's all part of it, that and support. But in the end, you've got to decide to put the addiction down. So when you say, when I say not to think of an elephant, you're going to think of it, but that's why we do the daily practice. And that's what I teach, where you write your fearful and resentful thoughts on paper and ask for them to be removed or release them and rest in meditation. So twice a day, you have a chance to write anything you want that's bothering you about these memories and these fantasies. But they're not in a vault. They're very much like 
coming out. They're moving down the chain. They're getting pooped out, <laughs> all gone. And if you have that thought again, then you have a fresh thought. But again, you're just going to keep it moving. So think of it differently than a vault that you, you know, try not to think about. There's no vault. So um, in the past few months of doing the daily practice, limerence got better, but the thoughts still come. That's normal. It especially is normal to have limerence stay with you when your life sucks, which your life does. It sounds very empty and stressful and sad right now. You're in debt. You're in this nanny job. It doesn't pay enough. And you just squandered all your inheritance on a, on a scam. Um, you thought you had a twin flame. And um, it's funny, I get hate mail from twin flame devotees from time to time and they're just like they accuse me of stealing their knowledge i mean it's pretty well i'm not going to go there but it does not serve people with limerence the whole twin flame idea i know of no exceptions it's a tool of limerence to believe that somebody who's not into you is actually into you and there's hope and you can keep pouring all this energy into this fantasy rather than into your own life i have yet to meet anybody who's into the twin flame idea who actually make, sustains themselves with a proper living. It's an addiction, and say what you will about that. People say, oh, you just don't understand. I do actually understand. I know a great deal about it, and I reject it. So you could take that or leave that for people who watch that. So I really recommend to you, Jerry, that you really try to face reality on this. Um, there, this guy is not into you. And you know, staying away. It's really good. You just, I'm glad you are feeling the pain because it may have cost you a great deal of money to get this knowledge that people will just rip you off and manipulate you to believe that love is just around the corner. But what you're doing here, what putting all your love on somebody who barely even exists in your reality, who you met for three hours once and doesn't want to see you, doing that is, it. you know who it happens to? It happens to people who are emotionally neglected. You got really good at imagining love where there is no love. You got good at that as a kid. It saved you. It kept you intact for adulthood. And now it's just time to take it off, you know? No more fake love, only real love for you. And I've got some things to kind of like bring up here in your letter because I think your proposed solution doesn't feel like love either. So let's just see what we got here. All right. So you've been doing the daily practice. You started to get glimpses of clarity. Yeah, it does that, doesn't it? Anybody who wants to learn the daily practice, by the way, there's always a link down below in the description section. It's free. You can learn it for free. And th these are the techniques I've been using for almost 30 years. They're the, it's what saved my life. It's what continues to support my healing. It calms dysregulation. Okay, even when... I wrote you the first time. I wasn't expressing what was actually happening. So yeah, it sounds like you were kind of in a fog when you first wrote, and then you got out a little bit. Clarity versus fog. That is so good, Jerry. That's what healing looks like. You come out of the fog, and sometimes we don't like what we see. You know, we start to see reality for what it is, and we're not dressing it up in twin flames and hope and blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's just like, oh, this is a tough situation, and changing it is going to be hard. But that's okay. That's okay. All of our ancestors had to do stuff that's really hard, and we can do it too. We can do it too. We're equipped. We are strong, and we're capable. All right. So this was a little confusing to me. I've been going to a few AA meetings and meeting people even though I'm sober. So I wasn't sure if you're saying you got sober and, and you need to stop drinking because you're an alcoholic, and that's why you're going to AA or if you're going to a few AA meetings for some reason, even though you're not an alcoholic, if that's what you mean by sober. So in AA, that word sober really means a specific thing. So I, 
you know, it's, it, it means not only not drinking, but participating in the program of recovery. That's what sober means. And in AA, dry is the word for somebody who's not drinking, but not participating in a program of recovery. So it sounds like, I don't know, you poked your head in, but what I'm curious about is if you're an alcoholic, why are you just going to a few meetings? And if you're not an alcoholic, why are you going to AA? Now I know that I say, you know, go to some open AA meetings, but this is like, we're post pandemic now. You've got your own meetings to go to. And maybe you live way out in the country and there's no meetings, but you need to be at your own meetings. And if you can't get to them physically, you need them online. And your own meetings, if you're not an alcoholic, from what you're saying here, might be Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, especially if it's a women's meeting, um, Codependence Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous. Debtors Anonymous is where people go when they're under earning and in debt. And it's a terrible problem to have. And I just don't think... It's common that there are easy resources for this, but 12-step programs are free. You make friends who are walking the same path. They're wonderful. And I've known a lot of people who do Debtors Anonymous, and I really like what they've been able to do with their recovery. I'm very impressed. It's honest, it's valuable, and um, they, I just see them setting boundaries. I see them buying houses. You know, good things come from that. So go to 12-step meetings for yourself. I can't help but wonder if you are an alcoholic and you want to stop drinking and AA is for you, I think you're kind of half-assing it here. And if you're not, I, I can't help but wonder if you're there trying to meet men. That's what I'm thinking. AA is full of men, but it's full of men who are fragile, who are in grave danger, who have a progressive and fatal disease and who are working on it. So just, I'm not saying this is definitely true for you, but for anybody listening, do not go poaching romance in 12-step meetings. It's, you know, this is like the worst thing that can happen to somebody newly sober is that they get into a relationship and things get crazy. You know, they get obsessive, they get their heart broken. A relationship can be really destabilizing to somebody and it's not morally right to go in there and try to get your needs met from somebody who's in a life and death situation. And furthermore, even if people have a little bit more recovery than that, I would just say, if you have CPTSD, it is not ideal to go, you know, browsing for partners in a place that's all about trying to recover from this terrible condition. I would just say that. So when people are in 12-step programs for themselves, they may meet potential partners there. There's still a lot of trouble that can happen. But I'm just going to put a big yellow flag around your participation in AA there. I didn't understand what it was. And since you're not clear, I'm not clear. All right. And you say you currently nanny for a child and you're making barely enough to live, let alone pay down your massive student debt. I, um, this is really normal. What you're telling me, being a nanny and having a massive debt, I've seen this again and again and again. And I, I'm going to say debtors anonymous because this is a very bad recipe for your future. With the debt, you're not really free to pursue something new like go to school or you know, do a new thing. And with nannying, you're never going to have savings. It's just never going to be enough money. And I, I know a number of people who nanny professionally. And I, I, I know that it's a job that can be a real godsend for somebody who's a refugee or who has just immigrated and or they, you know, they don't have any skills to do anything else. But girl, if you have student debt, you have education. And you must go find a way to earn some proper money. If you don't earn money, you're behaving as if, and this will sound harsh, but you're behaving as if somebody's going to come rescue you. You got free of your dad. But I can't help but think this limerent idea, which always visits upon people whose lives are bleak right now, that's when it comes. 
but that you're going to get rescued from this. And that's why I love your second letter, you know, where you really say, I need to get on track. I need to get my life together. Yes, that's right. Okay. So then you said you're looking at these other careers and I'm going to say something unpopular, but like collaborating with midwives in birth work and homestead gardening, these are notoriously terrible jobs for money. They may be passion jobs for you and that's nice, but that means you do them on the side. You need to make a living. If you don't intend to be taken care of and you say, I, I need to be taken care of. I take care of others. I want to be taken care of. I'm going to lead up to how you get taken care of in the proper way, in the legitimate way. But right now you're 25, you're nowhere near about to like settle down or have a family or anything. It's time for you to become truly self-supporting, which means supporting yourself, paying off your debts and being in something that is uplifting for you and fair. So when we talk about like earning what we're worth, nannies get what nannies get. The market dictates what nannies get. And it's notoriously low pay. It's notoriously low pay. So when you say you're worth more, this is where I'm going to tough love you. To be worth more, you have to do something that pays more. This is just how the world works. So if you, know, if you do a low paid job, you cannot rail against the world that your low paid job has low pay. You're going to, if you, if money is what you want, if you want to get enough money to live on, you've got to go look at the work that brings in sufficient money. And you may also want to really look at like health insurance and, um, vacation benefits and all those things. Nannying, you know, the minute they don't need you anymore, you're out of a job and you don't have all those benefits. So I, I just, I, I really want to emphasize that for you. It's, it's a fine thing for somebody who has no choice or for somebody who is about to get rescued by somebody else, but that's not where you are. You want to get on your feet. You got to have a proper, proper job. So I'm really proud of you for quitting that job without having another one lined up, but you have got to get busy right now, getting that job lined up, like out of the fog, out of the fantasy. I'm, I'm picking up your letter very quickly here after you sent it in, because I feel there's urgency here no messing around. There's nothing like urgency to get you to, you know, do what you have to do. And that's totally how I ended up starting my own business. Um, in 2008, you know, everybody I knew got laid off and that meant as a consultant, I didn't have any work. And that's when I started a company and that company, I had a video production company. And then with the pandemic, I put all my time into crappy childhood fairy. And now this is a wonderful way to make a living now. And it supports my whole family and I'm doing what I love to do. So it worked out. But because I was a single mom, I'm a married mom now, a remarried mom now. Um, but because I was a single mom at the time when all that work dried up, I had to figure something out. And if you, I'm going to put a thing at the end of this video. If you had one year to heal, one year to heal, what would you do? Cause I think, you know, you know what to do. And so this birth work thing, if, if it's being a doula or a homestead gardening, <laughs> You're going to have to figure out a way to charge a lot of money for what you're doing and become worth that. And I just, yeah, these are both very freelancey things and not likely to get you the security you want. So I say hobbies. Now I ran a video production company and my hobby was crappy childhood fairy. If I could do that, you could do that. When you're young and you don't, you're not, you don't have kids, you don't have a partner right now you have a lot to give to the world and you can simultaneously support yourself and develop your next thing. And you've got to start thinking that way. So then you say, um, you went to college for your dad and because of your dad and have spent your entire life trying to prove myself to him. Okay. I'm glad you take responsibility for that. 
your dad's out of the picture now. He's not supporting you. It doesn't matter what you thought at the time. All that matters is what you do right now, is what your choices are right now and how you solve your problem. It, it, you know, it's clear he's not going to solve it. And I'm glad you get to have that lack of enmeshment with him. So he was gone a lot of your life half the time. And he was hot and cold, demeaning, cuddling. And then your mom was childlike and you had to emotionally babysit her. I've seen this a lot where girls who had to emotionally babysit their moms I've this is a pattern I've noticed and you know perhaps some of the professionals know about research on it I've just noticed it crop up again and again if you don't get raised as a child by the adult you have trouble growing up later and that's kind of what I'm seeing you keep wanting to go back into some family where you'll be taken care of but you're right that's transactional at this time of life it's not your family which is curiously absent from your vision of having your own family um so you say you still, your parents, their house is run down, eh, you know, and you still play the role as you're emotionally maturing and they are staying children emotionally. So um, I hear you, but I would just really focus on the ways that you're not maturing emotionally yet. You're not self-sufficient yet. You're not having a relationship with a real human being yet. Just focus on yourself. I'm not trying to put you down, but just saying all that energy worrying about your parents or trying to figure them out, just bring it on in because you need every bit of focus right now to get yourself lifted up, all right? So you're coming out of the fog of limerence. It's been sucking the life out of you, yep. And the twin flame, twin flame spiritual entanglement that comes with it. So when you say spiritual entanglement, I'm just going to say, well, that sounds like somebody else was involved and it wasn't. And so it was... It was your, it was a fantasy and you gave yourself away to the idea of this person mm -hmm, who is, has nothing in common with the person himself. The idea of the person is in here. And then financially you gave all your money to a psychic who claimed to bring you back together. So live and learn, all right? You're not going to be gullible like that anymore. Never give money to people to do magic for you. Don't do it, okay? You physically took a job where you thought he lived to try to be around him, even though he would never return your messages when you reached out three times in two years. He's not there. It's just you. So good. Now you're like, here you are. You launched yourself. Now you're on your own and you were in dark and deep. But what you really want to ask is now what? How do you actually live for yourself and take a step toward a more fulfilling life financially, emotionally, relationally, and physically? So you have two and a half more months to complete the nannying job. And by the time this is on YouTube, it'll be even less than that. You're almost done and you're feeling bad because they're replacing you. And I think that's how anybody would feel, you know, when they watch their replacement being interviewed. I think that's normal. Um, but you really want to do something different. Good. And you're so overwhelmed because you don't have something to fall back on financially and no backup place to go. Yeah. So <laughs> money time, right? Time to line up some work or the type of work that has a house built in, a place to live built in, or line up some friends. Like it's time to get seriously busy on this and don't just leave it to the vague fog that you're in that somehow this is gonna work out. You have agency, my love. You are a young woman and you can, you can figure this out. And our ancestors time and time again, you know, they started as immigrants and they, uh, or they lived off the land and they, they made something out of nothing time and time again, right? They did it and we can do it too. And I've done it and you will do it. You will do it. But I want you to let go for the idea right now that living with some family who's not your family is somehow going to scoop you up. Like right now you have to be a single woman on her two feet. Very powerful thing to be.
when you sit with your heart, you, you have this image in your mind of evenings cooking dinner together with people you love being around and sitting at the table together. And you want to live where it's sunnier and warmer. And you really want to live simply with the land, quietly having a space of my own within a family. So I just want to say, like, if there are a family and you're not part of that family, you will always be subsidiary to that family. So I think maybe you're talking about like a commune or something. And um, so you could do that. You could be on a commune and maybe there's work for everybody. Also notoriously very hard to save any money or, you know, develop a, a savings account um, doing that. Um, or it's very interesting. You never talk about creating your own family and you're 25 and that's like if being in a family is, in, is what you want, what about being the mother, you know, the, the wife and mother in a family? What about that? It's interesting how that never came up. And I know that the seed of that idea of wanting to be loved by, by a partner is in there because of the limerence. I think that limerence, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a mutation on a natural desire to pair up with somebody and love them and be loved and have a sex life and have possibly children. Not everybody wants children, but perhaps you do. You end up caring for them all the time. So you say you don't know what you want. And I was just like, yeah, you're like, I just don't think. So this is my impression when I was listening, when I read your letter the first time. Um, Handmaid's Tale. Do you watch the show or read the book? They have these things called Marthas and they're women who are enslaved. And I know you're not signing up to be a slave, but they're enslaved to sit there and do the cooking, to be asexual beings who do the cooking and cleaning and take care of everything. And they, they, they do that for the family who has all the power. And that's what it sounds like. You're like, I could be a Martha. And I'm like, ah, do you really want that? I think some people, some people that might be their station, but the limerence is the key that there's something else in your heart that you, you, you want that love. So I think having a family is a wonderful thing. I'm somebody who always wanted it. I'm somebody who was really scared I wasn't going to get it. I'm somebody who now has it. And I, not a day goes by that I don't feel so grateful to have a family. My family of origin kind of di died or dissipated or stopped speaking to each other. But the family that I now have with my two children, my second husband, who's not their dad, and friendships with the guy who is their dad and his new wife, like that's my family. That's who I spend holidays with. We hang out, we call each other when we need something. And then I have a few very close friends that I can also, you know, they, they join us for holidays. We can call them if we need something. And it's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing to have in life. And I spent years not having any of this. I had friends kind of, but not the kind who helped you. And I talk about that phase of my life in a lot of other videos and in my courses. I had gotten very surface with the world. I didn't have people I could count on. I, I, for four years, I was in and out of the hospital with a medical problem for a while back in the past. And I didn't have people I could call for a ride home from the hospital. I had very few people who would visit me, certainly not more than once. One time I was in the hospital for a month straight. I went a whole week without anybody calling or visiting. It had come to that. It had come to that. And that's a very hard place to be. And so that's what I love about my life right now. And I remember at the time going, why don't I have anybody like this? And, you know, somebody, a mentor helped me and just said, look, you, your mom died. You know, you, your sister is AWOL, doesn't speak to you and still hasn't spoken to me in many years. Can't, couldn't possibly help if, if she wanted to. Uh, you know, I don't have a daughter. I don't have a partner. I didn't then. 
And I didn't really have a best friend. I had no one to help, and that's what happened. And so it was pointed out to me that I had to start somewhere in that cluster, in that constellation of people who would be there for you. And so it's a very hard road to have to pull it all together all by yourself. But again, at the stage of life you're in, it's okay. It's normal. And you were helped at one time. You got an inheritance. You made a mistake. So there was family help. Many people you know, end up at zero without the inheritance, you know, ending up at zero is normal. It's normal and you can do this. And you're gonna have to have friends, you're gonna have to do a lot of research and you're gonna have to work hard and be clear headed about where you're trying to go with this. And I just, I'm just gonna like be your surrogate mom here and just keep sort of nudging you like, go for the jobs that pay enough to live on and save some money. Having a little savings is how you're gonna be free to get into a relationship if that's what you decide to do and never have to stay because you are out of money. Like imagine if this nanny gig were actually an abusive relationship. I just can't tell you how often that happens. Or a relationship, maybe it's not abusive, but it's miserable. And so many people hold on and stay and crap fit because of the money reason. And so I just really encourage everyone, like get that money thing together. I don't feel like people talk about that enough. Sometimes the people who teach about trauma, they come from a social class that never has to worry about that. But I didn't, I used to live with boyfriends because that's all I could afford to do. Really not good boyfriends. <laughs> and I got to a point, I never wanted to do that again. And I really stepped up my life to make that, that one step up to be able to be autonomous. And it, 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 takes some, it takes some time, but sometimes life favors people who give it a try. You know, there's just a wind under your sails that you may experience sometimes. Just have faith. Have faith that if you try, if you communicate, if you keep working on yourself, you know, a little break will, it'll appear. It'll appear for you. All right. Um, so you would like to live with chickens and water a garden and cook. This sounds, yeah, that sounds really lovely, um, but it's not the part that pays the bills, right? So either you need to be, you know, with a partner who makes a bunch of money or is independently wealthy or a commune that, yeah, no, even in a commune, if you do work, you don't end up with savings. You don't end up with property. And when you're my age, let me tell you, you're going to need a little cushion. Okay. What are you supposed to do? You say you're caring for yourself right now. Yes. Um, but I want to be cared for. All right. So a rented family, a borrowed family, that's not how you get cared for in that in the constellation I talked about, there's parents and right now they cannot be there for you and probably never from what you're saying. Okay, you have one friend now, you have one daily practice buddy, very precious, good, but I'm not sure you can go live with those people or anything. And you don't have a partner. I would say, unless you're very committed to being single all your life, let's focus on money and partner. First money, then partner. And you can date in a healthy way. You can do that. Even if you were limerent before, you're going to be able to have a lot more strength against your limerence if and when your life is fun and you have joy. Limerence hits hard on people whose lives are not fun, are not fulfilling, are not full of love. And that's why it's happening to you right now. So the next move is fun, love, friends, money. Then you're in a position to start creating something wonderful in your life. You were born with a desire and a need to love and connect. And you needed it, not only because you were a good, sweet little baby, 
but because your nervous system was still forming and needed to learn and practice how to survive and participate in human life. We are tribal creatures and knowing how to connect with people and build mutual trust and to hold a boundary, these are all skills we were supposed to learn from our parents. And yet so many of us grew up more or less feral on connection and boundaries. And it can make it really, really hard to have a fulfilling relationship or to tell when we're being fed crumbs. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Maisie. And she writes, Hi, Anna. Growing up, my dad was and is a self-employed workaholic. He would never take breaks unless he was too sick to move and would never spend a full day at home. I would only see him about an hour in the morning and then at 9 p.m. My family often had to go to family parties alone and then wait until my dad showed up halfway through. He was always caught up in his own things and would not prioritize our family besides monetarily. My family in general does not have healthy boundaries. I believe both my parents have CPTSD, but my dad is very avoidant and fawns and my mom is avoidant and fights. Our house is small and we tend to always be in the same room when we're together. <laughs> this is what a picture. So we never learned how to be separate in a healthy way. It tends to just build up until someone can't take it. And then they leave for hours without saying when they'll be back. And that was very stressful as a kid since it was, it was too extreme. Spending every second together when we were annoyed or having someone leave with no endpoint. I have been in an entirely long distance relationship for about two years. My boyfriend and I met in college, but only started spending time alone together a week before everything was shut down for COVID. We had known each other for a few months before that, but only talked in group settings with mutual friends. Neither of us have been in, long -term, in a long-term relationship before this. We've been dr a driving distance of four plus hours our whole relationship, so building a connection has taken a lot longer than I assume it would in normal relationships. A recurring fight between us is that he is very emotionally distant when we're not together. He does not like texting, calling, or video chat. He always says that he prefers to talk in person. But when we visit, which is only about once a month because of the drive, he tends to shut down and box me out emotionally about three days in. When he boxes me out, I tend to shut down or get very passive aggressive and start fights. He also likes to walk around constantly, like walk around outside or alone in new towns. But that often leaves me alone with no sense of when he's coming back. When I get upset, he feels like he can't leave, which makes more tension. I want to note that the first few days are nice and we get along. I feel very insecure in the relationship sometimes because we have a communication disconnect. I feel like all of my communication needs have to just not exist. There it is. Since he is uncomfortable using the phone. Plus, since he always says he doesn't like talking on the phone, that also makes me feel abandoned. And then I start to fight. I feel like that is the only way he responds. And I know that is bad for the relationship. I feel like he's often too avoidant, but since that is a major trigger from growing up, I really don't know how to handle it. I know that he will come back and that he cares about me, but I know that when I start fights, when I feel triggered, it only makes it worse for us. It is very hard to deal with our issues when we do not communicate well over the phone and only see each other once a month. 
I have tried the daily practice a couple times, but I have not done it consistently. It's helped, but I have so much to unpack that I am still writing four pages of fears and resentments every time. It's hard to know if the relationship is worth it since it feels like we barely can even build a consistent connection. Any advice would be appreciated. Maisie. All right, Maisie. I was circling things as I went. I just wanted to read through your whole story and then come back and see. I'm going to read back to you what you told me. I think I can help. Okay. So you had this parent situation, very unusual home, very small. Everybody stuck together and nobody learned how to deal with conflict except to run away. So, you know, escaping conflict, it's really good in the short run. In the long run, it, it sort of thwarts development. There's no personal growth there to learn how do you talk through a conflict and resolve it. That's also a reason why drugs and alcohol are a problem in relationships because if you just kind of like blot it out, whether it's drugs, alcohol, running away, food, you know, just weed, whatever it is, if you're blotting it out, there's a whole bunch of feelings that are going unprocessed. And that's one of the things I've noticed about people who smoke a lot of pot is they, I've just noticed there's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of suppressed anger. And when they get angry, they get really angry. And that's consistent with CPTSD, really, that there's emotional dysregulation and then some attempt to try to control emotions somehow. So some of us use avoidant relationships. Some of us use drugs. Some of us use food. And we're working our way towards the day when we can kind of face what those feelings are, what the thought, it's not all about feelings. It's also just thoughts, beliefs that we have that we get on paper in the daily practice. We're talking about the daily practice. So for anybody new to the channel, the daily practice is a set of two techniques that I've been using for 28 years and I teach everybody. It's free. There's always a link to it down below in the description section. It's also on the free tools page of my website, but it's a writing technique where you name your fearful and resentful thoughts, ask for them to be removed or release them as the case may be, depending on your spiritual beliefs, and then a calm meditation. So just explaining this reference to the daily practice that Maisie brought up. Yes, it's a way to start moving your feelings through. You need the feelings build up because you're alive and because a lot has happened and because you're in a painful situation right now, where will they go? And what happens if there's no healthy way to process them, it can distort your perception. And that's why you're afraid that you can't really read the situation. I think this situation is pretty plain actually. And I think you know what it is that I will see in it and what other people will see in it. Um, and I'll just cut to the chase. This sounds like a crap relationship, terrible crap fit. I'll, you know, I just, I'm not getting it. He sounds like a very difficult avoidant person. And while it's understandable that some people are avoidant, it doesn't make for a good relationship. This thing where he can't talk on the phone or text, and <laughs> if, if you only see each other once a month, this is a, this sounds like a situation of convenience, um, not a relationship. I don't hear any part where, uh, your feelings and what you need out of it. Now I, I don't, I, you'll hear, I don't really talk about needs when people say I need my needs met. I like to be very clean. We're never technically abandoned as adults and we don't technically have needs that other people need to meet unless we are, um, you know, unable to care for ourselves for some reason, then there's a, there are stages in life when we all need other people to care for us. And so that's when we need our need, get our needs met. I find it helpful just to remember the things I actually need. I don't need a partner to make happen for me. So they don't have to meet my needs. They, they meet my hopes. <laughs> they meet my desires or my hopes, or they don't, but it's really helpful 
to recognize it's something you want because if you're not getting something you want that means one thing it means oh maybe you need to go do something else versus what you need which is why we get angry the anger i'm just projecting here but when you get angry at the way he just completely emotionally neglects you and anything that you would want to do with time and that you want to connect i assume this is a sexual relationship of course you want to connect and talk and stay connected what could be more natural so he he won't give that to you and you fight. So I want you to stop beating yourself up for fighting. Yes, the anger is probably coming from that well of child pain down there, baby pain, you know, where you, a baby is mad when, when their needs aren't met. There's, there's anger in the way baby, babies cry, and you see that come up in us, you know, when, we, when relationships are empty. The, the thing about CPTSD is that we hang around for this, and we keep thinking, just as it's only right and just that your mom and dad would have stopped their shenanigans and stopped and paid attention to you and taught you how to live. That is the right thing. It's not what all of us got. Not everybody is capable of giving that. And that's the hand you were dealt and kind of similar to mine. And so it's not right, but it is, it is, it is so. With a partner, they don't owe you anything. When you're dating somebody, you know, a marriage is sort of an agreement or some kind of a commitment is an agreement that you will uh, help someone in some way that you mutually understand. And so marriage is a common template for that and uh, a very strong one and quite serious. You know, if you marry somebody, they don't always tell you this because the first time I got married, it was very quickly done. And what I didn't know until later is that like now you share the debt of their tax bill. <laughs> Who knew? People don't talk about that, but it is, it's like a promise. It's a responsibility. And now I'm married for real with the full consciousness of all the responsibilities. And it means that if, if my husband or I really feel like we need to talk, the other person has an obligation to find a time to do that and to show up for that conversation. That's what our commitment means, among many other things. Um, so you're, you're going without a commitment and you're filling in, you're backfilling this big gap there in, in somebody not giving you just basics of boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. You're backfilling it with this idea that maybe it's just your childhood stuff. And you know, we all do that. And your childhood stuff is what's telling you to stay in this relationship. Your common sense is telling you that this is, you know, BS. This is not good. And it's never going to feel good. Somebody cannot have this. Yeah, no, you want a relationship. You actually want to talk and be connected. You've picked a turnip, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no human being is a turnip, but <laughs> as partners go, this is somebody who like cannot do it. They cannot do it. So it's hard to face when we get attached, we get attached so very hard, right? This thing where you fight, I, I agree that it would be good for you to work on that. I think if you couldn't fight about it, what you'd be forced to recognize, because fighting, it's like, it's a release of, of sorts. It's an escape from the feelings when you feel like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy like really doesn't love me and I'm not, this is not going to work. I'm going to have to leave. Like that is such a terrible thought to a person with CPTSD who's been neglected that a fight just feels like, oh yay. It's like, it's like the dog chasing the squirrel, you know, something else to go after instead of the pain of what you're not getting. And it's sad, but you can do better. You can. The path to true love begins with deciding to no longer have crap fit love and crap fit. That's my word for when we fit ourselves to situations that are actually unacceptable. People with characteristics that are actually unacceptable to us. 
You get to decide what you really want and you get to own that. And so many of us have had that squashed down. We somehow feel it's shameful and unspeakable that we want someone to love us and stay with us. You get to own that. You get to have that. That is okay. Having CPTSD is a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances growing up. Falling in love and wanting a commitment is a normal reaction to being alive. So you're okay. You're okay. You're just crap fitting. That's all. That's what this sounds like. And um, part of you knows to rail against the injustice of it. But all's fair. When you're an adult in love, you know, in a relationship, all is fair. You can only have what another person is willing to give. So that's what I suggest to you. You said that you've done the daily practice a couple times. Come back. Come like, do it for real. Do it for real twice a day. Come take, you know, you can come to the free calls that I lead for everybody who takes the free course. If you become a member, you can come to daily peer-led daily practice calls. We have like three or four a day. It's pretty wonderful on a community of members who they're using the daily practice. They're supporting each other in it. And it's a way that you can have friendships with people who are also walking the same path and agree with this idea. Like we need a way to process these fearful and resentful thoughts, like going out and trying to talk about them all the time isn't always productive for those of us who have, you know, CPTSD hamsters running in a wheel in there, just like everything's terrible, everything's terrible. You know, you tell that to people and it can push them away. So we work, we, we're, we're in a group of friends who understand one another and we support each other. And there's something about when you write and you read to another person and you laugh together about, about what you were just thinking. It's not always funny, but it often is. And I love that. I love it when my fears are revealed to me to just be funny and uh, I get more lighthearted about it. Other times I, I have fearful or resentful thoughts. And when all the stuff is cleared away after I've used the daily practice, what's left is, you know what? I got to do something about that. That actually is a problem. So we just get more clear headed and lucid. Whenever I've avoided the daily practice, it was, it was always because I was in a terrible relationship. And I think I knew on some level that if I were to name my fears and resentments and that feeling of like clarity and truth came in, I would know that I'd have to leave the relationship. And like so many CPTSD kids, it's easy to get it. It's, it's all too easy to get into a relationship and it's almost impossible to get out. That abandonment wound is just like, you know, it's just like a metal collar on you. It's terrible. So we help each other. We help each other just take these things off and be free. You can face reality. Reality feels good. You know, the truth feels good when you're just like, yeah, this is bullshit, huh? <laughs> you know, it feels good and you deserve better. So another thing you can do um, is, you know, really stake a claim on what you actually want. Write it down. Don't pull your punches. Don't say, oh, I want a life partner. Like, I don't think you want a life partner. You have a life partner. You want somebody who loves you. And if that's a, if that's a spouse, say it. Um, and I think mostly when I talk to people and ask them to be honest, it's usually that when people say life partner, I say, so that implies no commitment and they go, Oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I go, so is what you want is your vision that you would have a relationship that doesn't last forever. That at some point people leave, they would go, no, no, I want it to last. And I'm like, well, that's a spouse. That's a spouse. Yeah. You could nitpick about the financial arrangement, but whatever it is that is your heart's desire of what you really most want, like name it, write it down. Just the act of writing it down. This is not magic. I'm not telling you to like manifest it or anything. You just write it down so that you know, so that you're square with yourself, that you're 
honest with yourself about where you're coming from. And that will start to create an agitation when you're getting into situations that are not that. You don't have spouse material happening here. You don't even have boyfriend material. I mean, somebody who won't call you, that's not, I don't know. This is a thing of convenience. So when that's going on, you're going to feel agitation. It's going to start to feel really wrong. And you're thinking it's wrong. You're writing to me. You're, you're in doubt, but that's because you were, you were programmed as a child to doubt your perceptions. That when you feel like your needs aren't being met, that you're sad, that you're not being loved. It's like, no, actually, you know, everything's fine. You got too good at that. It's time to take it off. It's time to take it off and let your standards come to the forefront of like, no, I get to be loved. That's what I want. I'm worth it. So many problems that you have as an adult because of trauma when you were a kid started as a means of survival. And this is one of the most incredible and beautiful things about human beings that when we didn't have the love and safety we needed, some part of our spirit rose up and created that love and safety as if by magic. So that's the origin of what we call magical thinking on this channel, the power to manufacture reality. In this video from about a year ago that I'm about to share with you, I respond to a letter from someone who is stuck in the magic. And when I published it, there was an outpouring of identification. So for those of you who haven't seen all the videos from back then, I'm sharing with you now my video called Lost Love and Magical Thinking. Now, magical thinking is usually considered a bad thing, but getting PTSD during childhood and going into magical thinking and getting really good at it may just have saved you from having your spirit destroyed. And I want to tell you why I say that. So when bad things were happening and a parent hurt you or abandoned you or told you you were worthless, your little child's mind, you know, if you had stayed present and lucid in those moments, you would have had to absorb that blow. You would have had to take it in. And it's so unthinkably painful that it, it could have shattered you emotionally and psychologically. I mean, what parent even says these kind of things? I've heard them do it. It happens. But who would abandon a kid? Who would physically hurt them? So as a kid, you couldn't take that in. Your mind did something incredibly brilliant and separated you and shut down the feelings and hardened that little tender part of you that could perceive reality, that was tuned into the nuance of what everything means and where people are coming from. And it put those parts of you in a safe place in quasi-unconsciousness. And that's how you dealt with experiences that could otherwise have hurt you even more. So checking out, thank goodness that we were able to do that so that there's an intact little spirit in there now, and we have the good fortune to bring this part of ourselves back into the world. It's not always obvious how to do that. And when we make an effort, it can be clunky and inconsistent. And then we keep slipping back sometimes into that checked out mode. And when we do that as adults, people can hurt us. We get confused instead of angry and we cling instead of running away. But we can keep trying to keep coming back up out of ourselves and, and follow that road to healing. That is what it's like. So today I have a letter from a woman I'll call Olivia and she is right there like healing but sliding back into that little place that's unfortunately for her right now, pretty negative, but she can't totally see it yet. So I'm going to read her letter out loud and then see if I can help her open her eyes and get unstuck and take 
one good strong leap forward in her healing. And here's what Olivia says. Dear Fairy, according to your quiz, I score 100% in CPTSD symptoms, as does my mother. I don't know anything about my father. I've never even seen a photo of him. My mom was an abused child. She was beaten, abandoned, and sexually abused. She was a heroin addict when she got pregnant with me in her early 20s, and my father was a party fling. She decided to go ahead with the pregnancy with me. Long story short, she did give up on drugs. And when we make an effort, it can be clunky and inconsistent. And then we keep slipping back sometimes into that checked out mode. And when we do that as adults, people can hurt us. And we get confused instead of angry. And we cling instead of running away. But we can keep trying to keep coming back up out of ourselves and, and follow that road to healing. That is what it's like. So today I have a letter from a woman I'll call Olivia, and she is right there, like healing, but sliding back into that little place that's unfortunately for her right now, pretty negative. To school alone without anyone to prepare breakfast or pack a lunch. We often stole candy from 7-Eleven to feed ourselves. I could go on with the many layers of dysfunction in our family, but I think you probably have a sense that it simply was not healthy or safe for a child. All right, I got the picture. It's coming together now. So that's some background. And Olivia says, Now I'm in my 40s, barely scraping by financially, and have yet to experience a true, healthy, stable, and loving relationship. I live with a friend who also happens to be someone I obsessively fell for a few years back when we first knew each other. I became convinced through intense dream and meditation experiences that we were soulmates and mystically bonded. I had no idea I was just one of his many booty calls. He was good looking, troubled, bad boy archetype, and I was living in a fantasy world, thinking that he must feel it too. I can't deny that there have been some very bizarre synchronicities, but this person flat out rejected me to my face and I kept hanging on to a sliver of hope that one day it would all change. He would see and love me and we'd live out our fairy tale destiny. Over the past year, we have established a very different platonic dynamic. Though I still feel anxious at times and feelings do resurface, mainly sadness associated with the feeling of being unwanted and rejection and being on my own. I quit hooking up with him when I set a standard that I would not be sexually involved with anyone who didn't actually choose me, see me, and love me. And needless to say, I've been celibate ever since. I'm renting a room in his house at a very affordable rate because he helped me out of a situation where I had nowhere to go. I'm working diligently on building a business and he's supportive in that. He also understands what it's like not to have family to back you up, and I believe wants to be there for me in that way. We now play as if we're more like siblings who help each other like family. He refers to me as his sister. He also had a really rough upbringing and is focused on healing. I'm well aware of how messy this all probably sounds, but our relationship continues to improve. I feel that he's been a really tough teacher and mirror for me to see where I'm not well, especially in terms of codependency and extreme people-pleasing in his case. My female friend actually told me that it was looking like Stockholm Syndrome, given the way that this guy was treating me. I'm doing all I can to shed light on that and change the behavior. The main reason I bring all of this up is that despite the positive shift in our dynamic, me accepting that he's not the one, 
circling a lot. I must look like a, like a mean teacher here, but I'm going to go over this again, and I just want to make sure we talk about some of these key phrases you're using. So accepting that he's not the one for me, though when he's particularly sweet, says Olivia, and he's now more than he ever was, these flickers of future faking do resurface until I talk myself out of it. I have an underlying fear that my dynamic with him may be blocking me from meeting someone who would be right for me. He now has a great girlfriend who's helping him heal and grow, which I would think would help clear the space even more. But I'm basically looking for some perspective from someone who understands CPTSD. I'm happy with my living situation and I care for him deeply. I'm just curious if maybe I'm not catching a blind spot and would love your input. Thank you for taking the time to read this. I'm very grateful. Olivia, I think when you wrote to me, I, you, you've seen enough of my videos to probably guess where I'm going to come from on this, okay? I think that you are in some serious magical thinking. And I'm noticing some phrases here that tend to come from new age types of disciplines and communities. And you may have seen, I have a video, I'll link it at the end of this one, about ways that New Age myths can be used to manipulate people. And I think that while you're kind of being manipulated here, most of all, you're deceiving yourself. All right? Tough love. But let's go through your letter and I'll tell you why I say that. Okay. First, I heard your background. I, I don't think anybody who was abandoned at that level, who, whose mom was a heroin addict, who had to get themselves out on the city bus and eat it and steal candy at 7-Eleven <laughs> when they're five, that's just, you know, I totally understand. I understand as few others can actually what that can do to you and how it can distort your perception of what it means to love somebody or be a friend or be a brother and sister, all right? So you're in your 40s, and you haven't yet had a truly healthy, stable, and loving relationship. And I think that, you know, you had told me a little more that I didn't read here, but you've been working really hard on yourself. You tend to be a hermit. Um, some people are really, truly introverted, but a lot of people are hermits because it's triggering to be around people. And so I'm going to guess that whatever your personality is like, people are triggering for you, and you crave a safe space where you know who it is, you know who you're living with, and you, you can feel kind of safe and taken care of. Being in your 40s and not being financially on your feet, you know, it happens to the best of us, right? But I'm hearing here that this could be sort of a setup for you to be extremely vulnerable and dependent on somebody who is feeding off of your energy, your romantic energy being in that presence. So I'm just going to go through some areas that I circled one by one and not just jump to what it is I'm about here. Let's build up to this. Okay. You became convinced through intense dream and meditation experiences that you were soulmates and mystically bonded. It's called limerence. And that is something really common for people with childhood trauma, especially people who were abandoned. And limerence is this thing that's something like being in love. But what's strange about it is it involves a whole bunch of obsession. You'll find yourself like just trying to read into every little thing that the other person says or does. There's a huge element of fantasy there. And you know, especially if you're kind of involved in, in um, spiritual new age type stuff, there's going to be some validation for this that, oh yes, your fantasy about this has some 
has some reality to it. But with CPTSD, not all fantasies have reality to it. You can have a vision of what you want for your life, but when you keep imagining that somebody is your special somebody, but they have a girlfriend, they don't want to be with you, then it's a, it's a toxic drug that in effect, even though you don't want to be, you're taking a drug to try to numb out what's horrible. And the trouble with limerent relationships is they almost, they, they very, very rarely can evolve into something like neutral and safe. So I'll get to that. All right. So soulmates and mystically bonded. Um, this may really upset a lot of people listening, but I think if you have CPTSD and attachment issues, I would just get rid of the whole idea of soulmates. It's, it's not a helpful concept and it's a, it's a phrase, it's a figure of speech that people use. It also goes along with um, the idea of twin flames. And if I had a dollar for every time people had written to me about um, how they used to believe in twin flames, which is like where you believe that you're the same soul as somebody, uh, it's just not true. I'm just going to call it. It's not true. It's, um, it's a form of fantasy and it can be used to manipulate people. Uh, it's a way of convincing people that even though a relationship is just totally awful and you don't get what you want and you, maybe you're a side thing or a, um, a source, um, a source of energy or romantic validation for somebody, that it all means something. It's a way that people get hooked in to bad relationships. So that's why I'm just calling it. All right. So then in your letter, you said, I can't deny there have been some bizarre synchronicities. Okay. So when you, there's a couple things you say here where I can tell you're not platonic. You're still in it. The magical thinking is there, but you're fighting it. You're sort of like, I'm trying to accept that we're just friends and I'm living in his house and he has a girlfriend, but there are these bizarre synchronicities. Later in the letter, you say, uh, I'm trying to accept that he's not the one for me, but when he's particularly sweet and he is now more than ever, these flickers of future faking do resurface until I talk myself out of it. So I think you mean you future fake yourself. And for anybody watching, future faking is when somebody manipulates another person by saying, it's going to be so great, baby, we're going to get married. And they do this like when you barely know them. And if you're very vulnerable, you go along with it and believe it. And future faking, I'd say that when people say, you know what, I think that we're soulmates or we had a past life together. That is, you know, that is a form of future faking. It's, it's, it's sort of trying to trick somebody into thinking there's something there, but there's no intention to follow up on it. They may occasionally think they intend to follow up on it, but future faking is it's um, connected to a lot of narcissistic behavior and manipulative behavior where somebody is just trying to get what they want. So you know that word, but if you were applying it to him, I, I don't know if he's future faking. I think you, you might be future faking yourself is what I'm saying. Okay. So then you kind of, you say that, uh, there are bizarre synchronicities, but, and here you come back to reality, this person flat out rejected me to my face and I kept hanging on to a sliver of hope that one day it would all change. He would see and love me and we'd live out our fairy tale destiny. All right. So when you say fairy tale, I know you're being ironic and you're being silly, but I know what limerence is like, and it is a fairy tale. <laughs> That is what's going on. It's a pretend story and it's a fantasy. It's a form of escapism. So, you know, trauma reactions, it's like fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And when you go into fantasy, it's a form of 
flight. You're escaping. Reality is too hard and too painful. And there's these little reminders that something's terribly wrong and change is going to be required and change is scary. And so it's just like, whoosh, I'm just going into this fantasy because really, you know, this is going to work out. There's, there is no writing on the wall that this is going to work out at all. All right. So I, I'll just be the mean old fairy who tells you that it, um, this is not going to work out. But right now you guys kind of have an agreement that you get to stay there and fawn on him, you know, think that he's really special and great and helping you. There's a lot of language of helping here. Um, you did say it's almost impossible to be yourself around him because you're so nervous. And that is, um, that's just one more sign like that this is not like a good relationship. A good relationship, for, whether it's platonic or romantic, means you can be yourself with somebody. You're not afraid to be yourself. But you know what happens, Olivia? It, what we do is we stop being ourselves because being ourselves would make it all too painfully obvious that this is like, it's like a cat walking on the piano keys, right? It's just, it's not, something is really discordant. It's not working. There's no harmony here. And so you're cramming this belief system in that somehow it's okay. Well, you know what we call it around here. We call it crap fit. And that's what we do when we got so good as, at, as kids at fitting ourselves to crap. Now, I bet when you were at 7-Eleven stealing candy with your sister, I bet you guys were so good at looking like good little innocent girls, right? And you were good little innocent girls. I mean, kids got to eat, right? You were good. But I bet you learned to start putting out an exterior version of yourself for other people to see while you get in there and was like stealing, you know, candy. And uh, having grown up kind of poor and neglected myself, I just know there's a lot of shame involved. It's a lot of shame. And a person can get a very strong need to sort of cover it up. And, and when you get so good at that, when you get so good at covering up your shame, that's crap fit. And if you don't heal that, see, that's a beautiful adaptation to cope with being a little kid and not having food. In your 40s, becoming dependent on somebody where you can't be yourself and pretending that there's like some sort of magic to the whole thing, that is the same thing. It's, it's, it's the same survival technique, only now it's not helping you survive. It's sabotaging your ability to survive. Like this is a fragile situation and for you, a wonderful next step in your life would be to heal from your trauma and to heal from trauma. Most of the time we really need to be like in kind of a peaceful, safe space where we're not getting triggered all the time. So then you say over the past year, we've established a very different platonic dynamic. Um, and I'm just going to say, I think he's established a platonic dynamic um, or a, a, a platonic boundary, the dynamic sounds like it's still very much romantic. Though I still feel anxious at times and feelings resurface, mainly sadness associated with feeling unwanted rejection and being on my own. Oh, I mean, I know I don't need to tell you this, but you see the parallel of where you were as a child. And now there you are again, rejected, abandoned on your own and trying to hold on. Olivia, you're stealing candy right now. That's really what's going on. You're not getting food and uh, you're stealing candy. And you describe here, you feel sad. 
You say, I quit hooking up with him when I set a standard that I would not be sexually involved with anyone who didn't actually choose me and see me and love me. So I'm proud of you for doing that, to stop having sex with him, but you had to set the standard. Like he says, I don't have feelings for you. I'm flat out rejecting you, but I will keep having sex. I'm taking a lot of letters about this recently because I want to talk really strongly on your behalf and say, so long as you are entangled in relationships like this, it won't be enough to not have sex. If you're living there, if you're sad all the time, if you're abandoned all the time, it's like you have a, you know, a wound, right? And you just keep like scraping it off. The scab is off and it's bleeding again and again and again every time it hurts you. How are you going to heal with that going on, right? But I get you. I think you're scared. I think you're really, really scared that you can't make it. So you said, I'm renting a room in his house at a very affordable rate because he helped me out of a situation where I had nowhere to go. So, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person who had to live in a difficult situation because you had nowhere to go. But this has been going on a year and you're saying that you're working on building a business and he's supportive. Um, I'm going to suggest something like that sort of flat is maybe more advice than you want. But building a business to get out of there sounds like a recipe for vagueness and that for the short term, getting a job is what would get you out of there. Getting a job is what would get you out of there. And it's possible to build your business while you have a job. I did. I built up my business as a single mom and uh, it takes a lot of energy and focus, but you can do that. A job would bring in immediate income and not have to, you know, bring some business to fruition. He also understands what it's like not to have a family to back you up. And I believe he wants to be there for me in that way. He's not a family. Him saying that and him being there like a sister, that's not a family. Okay. This is not your family. This is a guy you used to have sex with who'd like to still be having sex with you, who's having sex with somebody else who doesn't love you. And so I know your family of origin was, a, was, was very much like that where you were not loved. But I want you to have that. If you want to stop having the suffering right now, you're going to need to make a conscious decision to stop having these crap fit relationships. It's so hard. I know. I know because it means walking away from the only family you know right now. It feels like the only thing there will ever be. And I know that you've been through a lot and that could feel really destabilizing. So there might be a period of transition coming up and I'll talk about that. One really big red flag I saw here, um, you're saying the relationship is improving. And what I'm hearing is that you're getting better and better at stuffing and hiding how you really feel about it and how hurt you are and how much this is paralyzing you moving forward in your life with being able to actually find a real relationship or get on your feet financially. And you say, I feel that he's been a really tough teacher and mirror for me to see where I'm not well especially in terms of codependency and extreme people pleasing in this case. Those words teacher and mirror for a, a, for a manipulative and sad relationship. That's where I was like, this is, you're into some new age stuff, I think, right? Cause that's a, that's a hallmark of it, a tough teacher and mirror. And those are put forth towards people who are being manipulated as a justification for saying, Sure, this makes you feel humiliated and empty and sad and unable to function, but I'm your teacher. I'm a tough teacher. This is not teaching you anything. It's sucking the soul out of you. Okay. I'm just going to say it really strongly because you wrote to me and you know what I'm like, right? 
I care very much about you. I relate to you too. Um, and a mirror, the mirror to show you where you're not well. Well, have you seen enough, Olivia? I'm just going to say that with, with great directness. Have you seen enough? You're not well. You have codependence and extreme people pleasing. All right. You're fawning. That's a trauma reaction. And you're sacrificing any opportunity to care for yourself and take care of your own life and be fulfilled and heal yourself to try to make it feel okay for him to do whatever he's doing. Your friend says it looks like Stockholm syndrome. I'm with your friend. <laughs> it looks like Stockholm syndrome. I don't think he's abusing you directly. I think he is a selfish person who is saying what he wants and you're agreeing to it. So in his mind, there's no problem here. And we get letters all the time where, you know, one party says, you know, I don't want a relationship. And the other person says, well, I can put up with that for now, but it could be a relationship in the future, right? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that's morally wrong. We can, we can, the, the manipulative person can, we can tell ourselves that we got consent and it's mutual, but it's not. We're taking advantage of someone who needs love so bad they will say anything to keep us from leaving. So that's what I have to say about him. And then you say, um, so you're accepting that he's not the one for you. Although you still keep getting this idea, the, these flickers, right? And I'm just telling you, so long as you're in this guy's presence, you're going to see flickers. He's somebody you were attracted to to begin with. He's somebody who has no compunction at all about having somebody he was sleeping with, would sleep with now, and a new girlfriend all in the same space. Like that works for him. And maybe it works for his new girlfriend. I don't know. Maybe this is actually really horrible for her too. And you might want to consider that as well. But I don't know. She is helping him heal and grow. Ah, so he's really good at getting women to help him and heal him and help him grow. This is starting to make me mad because you had said he's a tough teacher to show you that you're codependent and extreme people pleasing. So healthy adults, they don't heal each other. Okay, that's there's there are rare instances, I think, where a broken person ends up uh, with a with a very profound friendship with somebody who ends up being um, of a spouse and there was some sort of like assistance with healing there that could happen but, but that's not what's happening here he's not healing and growing he is just he's having a great time that's all but he's pray that when you tell a person who's vulnerable and codependent that they are healing you and helping you grow that's how you give them their fuel to keep them around and so a lot of what I'm guessing this is, is it's kind of like a narcissist codependent dance here where the narcissist gets that, you know, adoring energy and the codependent gets to feel like they're healing and growing or having a tough teacher, a mirror. And all of it is completely destructive to your life. So just calling it out. All right. I'm calling it out. So you say, I have an underlying fear that my dynamic with him may be blocking me from meeting someone who would be right for you. So Olivia, here's the thing I want you to like really like take in here. If you were to meet the person who's right for you, they would not want to be with you because your energy and your heart are just so entangled with this guy. He's like, he's running the show here. So a healthy person does not want to get involved with somebody who has that kind of confusion and entanglement. You know what they want? They want someone who takes care of themselves. They want someone who has self-respect and who wouldn't dream of trying to help and heal or have a tough teacher that causes them pain, but who takes positive steps on their own behalf. 
That's how healthy people behave. That's what they're looking for. Until we heal, or at any stage of our healing, the relationships that we end up with are, are usually a reflection of where we are ourselves. And so right now you're in something that's a little more like a transactional relationship. You know, I'll give you this if you give me that. So he gives you security. You give him the, you know, adoring energy that he wants. And that's transactional. That's not right. It's not, that's not love. And I get it. He's your friend and he's, you know, encouraging and supportive, but I'm just saying you can do so much better. You can do like 20 times better, but you're going to need to heal first. I don't think that you're going to go out of the frying pan and into a wonderful relationship. There's like this fire that you have to walk through first. And so jumping into a relationship from here would be very likely to have a similar dynamic or something just as, just as unpleasant and destructive for you. And you know, I don't think we have like nine lives on this. Maybe we have nine, but we don't have 20. And so the, every time that we get completely spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, functionally, financially invested in somebody and the whole thing falls apart, it's like something gets torn off of us and we can't totally heal that. And we walk into the next thing with some wounds from that. And if this happens again and again and again, um, I've heard it called like a piece of cardboard where, you know, cardboard gets glued together and you pull them apart and it's, and the, and the outer layer of the cardboard gets torn off every time. And soon you just have this like flimsy kind of piece of brown paper with holes in it and chunks of glue. <laughs> That's what it feels like, right? So the object of the game here is to stop bonding with these, you know, lousy, with these pieces of cardboard. Stop bonding, start to heal yourself. And, you know, I think one of the problems is that everybody says that, but nobody knows how to do it. I know how to do it. That's what I'm teaching here. I do know how to heal. I can teach you what I did. All right. If you ever want, go check out all my courses or my membership. That's what we do here. We get real with each other. We use tools that help to come out of the, the bad dream of what we think we have to put up with and all the anger and all the grief that drives us into trauma-driven lives and decisions. Okay. So um, those courses are down below in the description section. So you were thinking that he has this girlfriend and that would help clear the space even more. So I see what you mean that sometimes when you are pining away for somebody, when they're with somebody else, it kind of helps you face up to the reality. But in your case, it's not. You're still pining away. I don't think you're at a place where you can deeply consider other people's feelings. But, but for reference, hanging on to this guy with all your romantic energy for him when some other woman is in a relationship with him is undermining to her. If you were to accept that you're not with him and just let them experience whatever relationship they were going to have, uh, it would probably be better for everybody. And I'm going to guess, you know, it's not going to work out for anybody probably, but I don't know. You know, I can't, I don't have eyes for the future, but I know for you that hanging around that relationship is not clearing a space. And even that, those words, clearing a space, just remind me of that new age manipulation. It's like, it's okay, you know, he can bring her in. It's not like crowding the house. It's clearing a space, right? I just think it's BS. I'm mad at him for you. And I want to help you face this and, and get out. Okay. But, all right. So I'm looking for some perspective for someone who understands CPTSD. So there you have it, Olivia. That's my tough love. So here's, here's what I would suggest to you, if you can handle it, is take a period of time 
um, because I'm guessing that it would be very destabilizing for you to move on and you don't have the money right now. But let's say three months, three months to go get a job, start saving up some money and get ready to have enough money to get a deposit on your own place to live, maybe with housemates. And um, for people with CPTSD and especially for you as a hermit, I realize housemates might be tough. So maybe a studio apartment, something very small, you know, what they call in England a bed sit. It only needs to be small at first because when you heal your personal ability to direct your life and do things like get a better job, they just, it just starts getting easier and easier. And one thing about, <laughs> about being single is you, it, it pushes you out of the house. So some things that you might want to do is get yourself out there to things that don't cost money that connect you with people who are also interested in healing. And I'm going to suggest 12 step communities. Um, it's, there's no money involved. You know, you can donate a, a little bit of money if you want, but there's no money involved. There's no authority and there's nobody who can come in and romantically take advantage of you. Um, and in exchange for some kind of position or advancement in the organization. And I, that's not to say that vulnerable people don't have flings. But for you right now, celibate would not just mean not having sex, but not getting emotionally connected and entangled with a man right now. So you know who that leaves? Women. And if you're like a lot of us who had tough mothers <laughs> and who tend to be attracted to manipulative men, you may not have great relationships with women. And I would just say, just let that be your number one priority. Women friends in 12-step meetings. Uh, there's some, everybody qualifies for one or another. And one thing for you, you definitely qualify for Al-Anon. That was my safe space when I first needed somewhere to go to get away from all the toxic stuff I was involved with. And it was fantastic. And I met wonderful people who are working hard on themselves or who needed support. And I was able to, you know, be somebody who could listen to somebody else and support them and ask how they were doing. That was a growth experience for me. That was a mirror. It was not a tough teacher. It was a pleasant, lovely, warm bath with roses in it of a teacher. How about that, right? <laughs> Get that kind of teacher. And, you know, there's, I think right now as I'm recording this, there's, there's not always infinite in-person meetings to go to. I don't think that limerence is always an addiction. I think that that's, it's a close enough description of what it is. When we have childhood PTSD, there's stuff going on there that are like wounds, like psychological wounds. But for practical purposes, you might as well teach it as an addiction. So there's also programs for people who have love addiction, uh, where you can also get support for separating. And I just, I just encourage you to stay out of environments that are really conducive to you getting to feed off your energy from validation and um, kind of fatherliness from men. If it's genuinely fatherliness, not somebody where there's any kind of attraction, that, that could be kind of a nice thing for you to be around. And find the people who are safe for you. And safe people are people who are not seeking a romantic or sexual relationship with you. And they're people who want the best for you, right? So one thing about being in the meetings is that you can get a second opinion from your newfound friends when you go looking for a job. And the there's a type of job that people who have this kind of vulnerability are very vulnerable to, and that's to, to go work for yet another, um, usually man, who wants to suck that adoring energy. It doesn't, you know, it may not be a romantic type of thing, but who wants to suck that adoring energy out of you in return for, um, you know, a pretty low wage. <laughs> 
And because of your experience, people pleasing and codependence, you would be obliged to accept that you would sort of get back right into that same mind F that you are living in right now. So basically any job can get screwed up through exploitative relationships and entanglements. And that is one of the attractions of self-employment. And I know that that's a goal for you and you can set out that goal and you can begin that on a small scale, but just to get money coming in right away, I would recommend a really straightforward job where you do something that needs to be done at the end of the day, you clock out and it's never about some complicated dynamic with a boss or, you know, appearing with them at parties or, or listening to their problems or anything like that, like a super clean, straightforward job. And something that comes to mind is stocking shelves in a grocery store, editing video. That may not be a skill you have, but that's a skill that I developed and I loved it because it's a service <laughs> that you can do without getting any kind of entanglement with people. You can pass things over online, but online jobs, the one limitation is you're not going to be around people and one way or another, I'm going to encourage you to have a balance of being with people and having some time to rest and recover as a person who feels inclined to be a hermit. You want to be with people and you want to rest and recover. I have a lot of courses that help with the relationship part, the calming your triggers part and the connecting with other people. So if you're interested, definitely check those out. They're always beneath the videos, but you can keep coming back here while you're saving money, watch these videos for free and go take my free course, the daily practice. It helps calm symptoms and people who take that course are invited to come to free zoom calls with me twice a month where we use the techniques together and I take questions. Maybe I'll meet you there. I would love that. Has this ever happened to you? You met someone like no one else you'd ever known and you fell in serious like with them and you thought the other person felt the same way about you. And then you slept together and you realized too late that you just signed up to be friends with benefits. And now you're heartbroken. This is really common for people who grew up with abuse and neglect during childhood and all the trauma that goes with that. If that's you, you probably had no idea how what feels like true love could suddenly turn out to be nothing. And unfortunately, you didn't know what to do next to stop the situation from further traumatizing you. So my letter today is from a young woman I'll call Star. And she writes, Hello, Anna. Uh, when I was 16, I was diagnosed with cancer and had years of really complicated treatment that left me with a lot of problems. Once I was back on my feet, I was around 20 and I absolutely didn't know how to be a functional person as childhood wasn't much of a happy time too. All right, I've got my pink pencil. I'm going to circle things I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's go all the way through Star's letter and see what's going on. Okay. I used to be neglected, always compared to everyone in my family, and as a result of that, bullied and neglected in my school too, and just didn't feel like I was in some way important or likable. Once I felt like I could have control over my life and be functional again, I spent my time obsessing over studying and getting somewhere in life and completely neglecting my love life because I still didn't feel beautiful or worthy enough for a relationship. Last year at work, I met a really cute guy and we clicked instantly. We shared the same humor, we loved spending time together, and instantly had this feeling that we've known each other for ages. He started approaching me, giving me the much needed attention, appreciation, and made me feel relevant and special. This made me feel things I've never felt before. So one night we just hooked up 
at his place, and I instantly started developing feelings for him. He called me the next day just to tell me that he is still not over his ex-girlfriend and is way too tired and mentally drained to start a new relationship. It just shattered my heart to pieces. I felt unworthy and unlovable as this was my first ever experience with love whatsoever. I agreed upon staying friends, but I knew it wouldn't work. We were still working together and we had to stay professional too. Lots to circle here. After a month or so, we hooked up again. This time he flew back home right after and ignored my existence for two weeks before reaching out again. We didn't talk about what happened and I was way too hurt and scared to bring it up. So to not spoil our so-called friendship. A few months went by. We are trying to keep this friendship alive, but really the only way we get to spend time together is at the workplace. I still have feelings for him and I've told him all that, but now I think that most of this time I've been living in a delusion I created myself just not to feel the loneliness I've had before I met him. I tried to fill the void with this delusion of love. I started overanalyzing his every move, stalking him and his friends on social media. Obsessive, I tried to initiate things again, but every time I approached him, he would distance himself more and more until he finally, he was really obvious about not wanting to spend time with me outside of the workplace anymore. He never admitted to having any feelings for me or thinking about me, but he never denied it too. Sometimes he would totally act like he liked me a lot again, showing me affection and care. The next day he was distant and cold again. So it has put me in this delusion where I'm hoping that one day he will come back to me and love me again like he once did. I'm feeding myself this delusion of us being real soulmates and I'm not able to break out of it and start a healthy relationship with someone who will show me real love. I'm asking for your advice as I'm just not able to move forward with this situation. How do I let go of it and what can I do to feel better? Okay, Star, I got you. I can help. All right, I'm so sorry this happened to you. This perfect storm of having a rough childhood where you were neglected, you were compared to others, you were bullied. I mean, that's that's plenty to send somebody on a path of difficult relationships and CPTSD symptoms. But then you got cancer. And I don't I can't even pretend to know what that's like. I've had serious medical problems in adulthood, you know, but at least my personality was mostly formed and I had the autonomy to make decisions for myself and things like that. I can only imagine what that was like for you, Star, after your childhood and after having parents you couldn't really count on. You don't talk about it much, and I appreciate your referencing the past without trying to get into a big story. <clears throat> but I can read between the lines here that you were very alone. And, um, yeah, I know what that's like. When you've been through a very hard time all by yourself, anything comes up on the horizon, looks like it's a knight in shining armor. And that has happened to me. So I feel for you. You haven't done anything wrong, all right? But I can teach you how to avoid doing this again. Okay. So you met this guy and he, he, you, you laugh together, you love spending time together, and instantly had this feeling that you'd known each other for ages. Okay, what was that? You say that he loved you once and he stopped loving you. So first, I just want to say it's I, I, from everything you're describing, I think you're right. I think he was interested in a relationship at first, but something changed. Okay. Something changed. And so I'll talk to you about that, but let's just deal with the possibility that he's just a big player 
and he finds vulnerable women and he acts all friendly and nice and uses them and that's possible too. And what I'm going to teach you is going to help you either way, okay? Whether he had bad intentions or good intentions that fell away and you just couldn't deal with it. Either way, all right? Um, the solution is the same. Oh gosh, I just want to say again how nice that must have been to have somebody who to crack jokes with and who liked spending time, time with you. I bet that just animated you and kind of brought hope back to your life. I can see how that is. Okay. So he started approaching you. He gave you much needed attention, appreciation, made you feel relevant and special, made you feel things you'd never felt before, which I assume is like falling in love, maybe sexuality. So one night we hooked up at his place. So it's interesting that you use the word hooked up because you just preceded it by how, what an incredible connection you had. And then when you say hookup, you know, maybe you mean something different, but my understanding of hookup is it's a total like non-love kind of sex act. Uh, it's just people kind of like for convenience using each other and haha, it's fun. Goodbye. Don't even think about it. So right there, um, I can see what happened. I can see you thought you had to be cool about that, but I shouldn't think you were cool at all about that. You were falling in love with him. You were becoming yourself. You were having like that best experience that love can bring until then you, you thought that you were, that it was two way. Right. And so then you call it a hookup. So can I just suggest to you star, first of all, as a person with trauma, you know, both medical and family of origin trauma, consider just taking hookups out of anything that you would ever do anymore. You're, everything you say here is like, you want to be loved. You want to be validated. You want to be made to feel special and relevant. Hookups don't do that. In fact, hookups cancel out that opportunity. So, you know, what if you just didn't do that? Would you be willing to date in a new way that has a little bit more of a ramp to where you would make that decision to have sex with somebody. And it would be where you have enough information to find out what you're getting into. And you'll never again be hit by a total, well, let's not say never. It's possible for people to deceive, but it would be very unlikely that if you can take your time with this decision and get to know somebody and ask questions that are your honest questions and get answers that are truly satisfying and honest answers, that you can then have choices about who you end up, you know, bonding with through sex. And it will never again have to be somebody who doesn't care about you and who's not going to stick around. Actually, I'm not getting that he doesn't care, but just that he can't deal, but they're functionally the same thing. So you hooked up and you instantly started developing feelings for him. So from what the story you're telling me, you already had feel feelings for him, which is why you did that. Yeah. Developing feelings for somebody. It's weird how so much in this, in this day and age, developing feelings for somebody, it's like we hold it kind of in a confused manner. Like it's a problem. Definitely keeps you from being cool girl who can, who's like, I'm really cool with casual sex, hooking up. Awesome. You know, that's fine. Call me. Don't call me. Whatever. You know, I'm really cool with that. That's kind of what these situations, that's the persona that so many of us feel like we have to play. And there's a male equivalent too. All right. It's the nice guy. <laughs> the nice guy. No, that's okay. I'll keep helping you even though you don't treat me well. Um, so we just say, I'll just keep being, uh, you know, sexually available to you, even though you don't care about me. That's what cool girl does. And yes, there's a, there's a certain kind of uh, person who loves cool girl because it fits what they're looking for. There's another kind of person, and this might be who this guy is, is that wasn't what they were looking for, but that's what you basically signed up for. And so they kind of made a calculation on their side. You know, maybe they were lonely. 
um, maybe this guy, maybe he was lonely, maybe he, you know, he was still hurting from a relationship that he wasn't over. Maybe he was craving companionship and sex and all that stuff. And you were just there like, me, 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 me. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, why not? But when your feelings aren't really in it, you know, people, it's not going to feel great. It starts to feel really terrible on both sides, right? When it's not there, both people were looking for something else. So again, I can't read too much into where he's coming from, from what you tell me, but I just sort of try to take you at face value about this. Yeah. So you had sex with him and I guess that was your first time, right? So then he called you the next day. Oh, it's him. It's him. What's he going to say? Just to tell you, he's still not over his ex-girlfriend and is way too tired and mentally drained to start a new relationship. All right, so those are telling excuses. First of all, being tired is an excuse that people use sometimes, and not being over an ex is an excuse they use sometimes. I'm just gonna give you tough love fairy talk here, all right? People will say whatever they feel like they can get away with saying to hurt you the least. Most people don't really wanna hurt you. Maybe he feels guilty. But what I'm guessing is that what he encountered when you guys had that hookup is more than he bargained for, that you had feelings and expectations that kind of freaked him out, that he hadn't really, you know, calculated that into what he was expecting. And so it's, it's really easy, especially if people are drinking, I think especially for men, but it could be anybody. But if sex is just sitting there like, here it is, have some, you know, there is pretty hard for them to say no. It's hard to say no. Men have to have strong principles consciously that that's not what they want, or it has to be something they're way not into. So that's what I'm reading this is. I, I don't know, people are gonna weigh in on this, but I think he was interested in you, but you ended up being perhaps too real, or your needs were more than he actually could deal with, or maybe your needs were coming out in the in, prematurely. Stuff that was would be totally appropriate in a three-month-old or a six-month-old relationship about how you felt and what you wanted. You know, that you don't know because you know what? <laughs> you were like 16 when this whole part of your life shut down. And before that, you were traumatized anyway and invalidated. You haven't had a chance to be a teenager and navigate boy-girl dynamics. So this is your first time. So I just want you to just give yourself a big hug and a big forgiveness and just go, okay, that was my first go. Okay. <laughs> that didn't feel that good. And you know, it's happened to everybody. It's happened to everybody. And you're not a big failure or anything. You're, you're learning how to do this. And to the outside world, you look like a early twenties. I think you are right. You look like you probably have more experience than you do and more awareness, but they have no idea what it's like to walk around with an abandonment wound, you know, with the wounds of neglect and how that, how that affects your thinking and how it makes you behave in relationships. So somebody, you know, they show you a bit of love and affection and interest. That attachment wound will just go, you know, are you my mother? <laughs> Do you remember that Dr. Seuss book? We talk about it here sometimes. No, it's not Dr. Seuss, but it's like that. It's one of those books. <laughs> I owned it. Little bird goes around, are you my mother? Are you my mother? And thinks all the animals are its mother. And that's like us, right? If you didn't get parented properly, the minute you get into a romantic relationship, it'll just activate all that stuff in you that's just been sitting there dormant. Like when, oh, when is somebody going to just totally love me? And had you had that enough when you were little, you obviously had some, like all of us got some, maybe this much or this much, 
but you need it this much. And so there's these, just these needs, these emotional needs in you that are just like little alligators, like I, 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 I'm looking for something here. And people sense it and they're like, whoa, alligators. I was, I thought this was going to be roses, you know, and it's too much. And it's, I know it's sad. It's a terrible, terrible shame because I'm sure you're wonderful. And he probably is too. And he couldn't deal with the wounds that you now have. So it may be too late for him, but I, I promise you there, there are going to be even more meaningful relationships on your horizon as you go forward in life, more, more lovely, beautiful, connected. It will come a lot of times, you know, the ones that feel the most connected are happening when you have the giantest vacuum of your own needs met the needs that you're going to meet for yourself before you meet somebody. When you're not walking around with, I know this sounds like rocket science, right? I just, I mean, all my life and certainly in my twenties, people were like, you just need to love yourself. You just need to like meet your own needs and then go into a relationship like la 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 la. And it doesn't like, they're just like, gak, 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 gak. I don't even know what they're talking about. Like, what do you even mean? There are a lot of statements like that. Like you just need a good therapist. It's like, oh really? Well, where are they? I, I keep failing to find them. I go to one and it's not helping. There's no catalog of good therapists. There's not, you know, there's, it's just a thing that people say when they're in that privileged position of having benefited immediately from something and it was easy. And they're just like, just do what I did. It's so easy. Well, it's not that easy for people with CPTSD. It's not that easy. And we're teaching each other now, okay, here's what you do. So I've been doing, I've been going around this block for a long time and I'm telling you, okay, here's what I've learned, right? The trick is you can't really play the casual sex game like many other people can because you're not equipped with the deck of cards that always tells you what to do in this situation and that situation and how to actually be kind of neutral about the whole thing. I mean, I don't know why anybody would want to be neutral about it, but sometimes for some guy, you know, you just, you want him to like you, right? But you get to play this different path, all right? You're going to go down a different path where you go... Uh, I'm going to get to know somebody before I even kiss them. Cause I know kissing, kissing is a slippery slope. Okay. This comes up in a lot of my letters. All we did was kiss, but kissing it's basically, you know, you just basically open the big front door to the sex house. <laughs> That's what it is. So yeah, you know, from a trauma point of view, once you start activating all the physiology of sex, your bonding mechanism just kicks in. And so, you know, I don't know, you go this far, you go that far. Certainly there you know, there's relative intensity that goes with all of that. You're going to find out where your attachment wound shows up by going very slowly so that when it does and you suddenly go, ah, I'm freaking out, you know, this person doesn't even like me at all. And I think I'm going to start crying and I just, you know, I'm going to have to walk out of the restaurant or something before that happens. Or when the feeling comes up, when you're going very slowly and you have tools and support, I can't say enough. We'll talk about this in this video, tools and support. All right. Tools and support. That's what we all need. But when you have that and you go slowly, you can go, okay, hold on. I'm freaking out. You can just go into the bathroom of the restaurant, call your friend and go, I'm freaking out. This is happening. This is happening. And your friend is like, okay, slow down. Hold on. Maybe you write a few fears and resentments. Like I teach people, you get that down. You, get, you, you just come back to reality and your friend might say something like, you know, hon, I think you need to figure out like where he's coming from. And you go, well, how am I going to figure that out? You ask him. And I realize that it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's out of the line of common etiquette to ask somebody straight out. But if you don't know where they're coming from, 
you, you do get to ask. And if anybody's gonna be freaked out by your asking, all it's gonna do is accelerate the inevitable end. Like somebody who really likes you, if you ask them, they're gonna be like, oh, yay, she asked. I think that means she's interested too. Like you want that guy, you want that guy. So don't be afraid to be yourself. And if you're confused about things, don't pretend, don't act like somebody you're not. But go your, lay your grubby cards on the table, girl. Like, say it. Just say, huh, you know, this is a date, right? <laughs> and they can say, um, yeah, kind of. And you can say, kind of? Can you be clear about that? Because I think if, it's, if we're not dating, I got to kind of handle this differently. <laughs> you get to say that. Like, is that so terrible? No, it's not. But it feels terrible. And I'll tell you why. Because in addition to just like any time being honest and showing our vulnerability and liking somebody when you don't know if they like you is a vulnerable position. Yes, that's hard. But what makes it harder is when you have an attachment wound that's exaggerating the incredible importance of this person. Like it's life or death. Like either they're going to like you back and everything's going to be amazing or they're not and you're going to die. That's what CPTSD is telling your nervous system. And, you know, you might like intellectually know better, but that's what you're living through. That's what's happening. So that's why you need your friends and you need your tools so that even when you feel like it's going to kill you, you get lots of love and support from other people going, oh, no, no, Star, it's not going to kill you. We're going to be here for you. You can walk away from that restaurant. You can cut this date short. You can leave the door open to talk about it later with him. You can, you know, you have all these choices, but you don't just have to like march off the cliff to totally bonding with him through sex and then hiding how you really feel about him and becoming ashamed of yourself that sex makes you feel like you love someone because that's what it's for, okay? That's what it's for. That's normal. And so if you're talking yourself out of that, you're kind of robbing yourself of the sweetest, most lifeful part of yourself. It's a lovely part of you. It's a really important part of you. In fact, it's like for the, for the universe as a whole, it's like one of the most precious energies there is. You know, a young woman who through sex like falls in love and, you know, bonds. Like that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So you don't have to just like throw it around. You know, you get to like treat it like this very precious part of yourself. And that precious part of yourself flourishes in an environment of emotional security, honesty, love, choices, support from friends. So that doesn't all, all your, all your sense of life and death doesn't go on this one person you don't know yet. Even when you know them well, even when you've been married 50 years, you're going to need friends. So your heart went to pieces. You felt unworthy and unlovable. That was your first ever experience with love. You say love, but I think you mean sex because that's not love. It gets better. It gets better. Hold out for that. Okay. I agreed upon staying friends. Huh. The great myth of staying friends with somebody who just broke your heart. Yeah, but you know that. You said this. <laughs> I knew it wouldn't work. You did know it wouldn't work, and it's not working. But it's staying friends with somebody you're in love with is a lie, right? It's basically um, trying to hide how, who you really are and how you really feel with that most powerful force of the universe. You ain't going to hide the most powerful force of the universe. Like, it's going to just like... <laughs> it's like a, it's like the little dam, right? <laughs> What's that? The little Dutch boy. It's like an old story. You know, there's a big dam and it's going to break and there's a little hole and he puts his finger in a little hole <laughs> and he's trying to stop. He's trying to stop the whole dam from breaking. Yeah. 
the dam's going to break. So your for, the force of the universe, your love, your 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 need, the the whole of you, the beautiful creativity, powerful potential of you, mixed in with the trauma you've had and all the good things you bring, all of it. You know, it's a force to be reckoned with. So. Don't even think of hiding who you are. Don't pretend. You get to work on your healing. You don't have to like be, you know, um, a nun or anything. You can date. You can become friends with guys. But all I'm saying is go slowly and never, ever pretend to be friends with somebody you're in love with. You're not friends. Here's this is tough love time. Okay. It's a manipulation. It's to get them to keep hanging out with you so that you can keep trying to find a way to get them to love you. But pr I promise you, if they're going to love you, sometimes people who have rejected you will later come around and realize they love you. That happens sometimes. But the conditions that it happens under is oxygen. All right. Sometimes maybe things were, you know, the conditions weren't right for them. They weren't ready. They're, you know, who knows, uh, you know, maybe you were acting to this or to that. But when the, all the pressure comes off is when they can now consider how they feel about somebody they got to know a little bit. So the best thing you can do if you love somebody is just let space occur around them. Don't pressure them. Don't keep initiating contact. You know, if you want to, I'd say if somebody has broken up with you, don't, don't contact them at all. That's just a rule of thumb. All right. Unless they have your stuff and you have to arrange to get it, in which case you can have your friend contact them. All right. If he contacts you and he's like, oh, you know, hey, let's go, let's go get some coffee. Because, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, it's a narcissist. He's manipulative. Ah, maybe. <laughs> most likely, though, he's just a person. He's a person who's kind of lonely like most people. And he knows that you're, you like him and you're open to being friends. And it's nice to have coffee with somebody. It's also very nice to be adored by somebody. And especially if you have, you can fall back and say, but I made it clear that we're just friends and I'm not interested. And then you're not to blame. So I've lived my own experience being the person who tried to make somebody who was brokenhearted because of me be friends with me. And I regret that very much now. It hurt them terribly. And that was idiotic. And I'm not going to ever do that. Well, I'm married now, but, but yeah, I wouldn't do that again. And I've been on the end where, you know, more than once of being the great friend, you know, that gal friend who is just so cool about everything. And it's just this, it's just more of the same emptiness um, and hoping, you know, hoping. If you love somebody and they are not interested in you, this is what I propose. Um, don't be friends. Don't ever be a fake version of yourself. Just be an honest version of yourself and just say, yeah, well, oh yeah, I can't really be friends because you see, I love you, you know, and you've got to be honest about that. Like, that's how I feel and that's not going anywhere. So if you're honest about that, it's funny, you can really shock the world by being yourself. And suddenly a lot of the stuff that used to just break and turn up empty, it can't do that anymore. It's not an option when you're your honest self. Well, it, it can break. It can like totally just like shut down. When something is kind of a fake thing, when people are magic, are, are relying on magical thinking to kind of, you know, cello tape the whole thing together, <laughs> you know, make it hold as a friendship, honesty will just bust that up so fast. But sometimes if there really is something there, honesty will help the, the nonsense fall away and the true kernel will show up. And the kernel may be that it's, that there is love there. The true kernel may be that, um, there's great affection there. But when you're honest about it, people get an honest chance to decide how they want to, how do they want to deal with this? So if he knows that you're in love with him and he doesn't feel that way, he can, you know, he's, you're not tricking him into thinking you're fine. You know, he may want to know any, any decent person kind of wants to know what they're dealing with. 
Now you're young, this may not have happened to you yet, it's happened to me a couple of times, where somebody um, I never knew, they had had a feelings for me the whole time, and I found out after a long period of time of friendship, and it was just totally awful for me. I felt angry, betrayed, like, why did you bullshit me about that? Why are you lying? Like, I had to think back about everything we had done, and it was creepy and weird. Like, pretending you're somebody you're not is just, it's not, it serves no one. All it serves is, is the, a source for the fantasy that you're using instead of true nourishment right now, you know, like emotional nourishment. Sometimes all we can get is a fantasy for that. But it feels like it must be, we have to resort to fantasy because not having that person or having a period of um, barrenness, you know, we just don't have a love interest in our lives right now. Like that can be really uncomfortable. And it can be all, all this pain can come up and anxiety about the future and a lot of crap from childhood comes up and you don't even know what it is. You just know you're crying all the time. You're depressed. You're having anxiety attacks. But what that is, is, is the stuff coming up that a fantasy relationship or a quasi, you know, friends with benefits thing. That's kind of what you got into here. You, you accidentally became friends with benefits. So that is, that is a way, that's like a very like yucky way to try to avoid what's really painful right now. It's, a, it's an escape, but it's a lousy escape that goes nowhere. It's just going to keep dumping you back in the pool of pain. And the pain you have right now is only going to get more if you keep doing this, if you keep allowing yourself to be treated as a friend with benefits when that's not how you feel. So what you need is friends and support. I'm just going to go through the rest of your letter. Okay, you've been trying to keep the friendship alive, but really only the only way to spend time together is at the workplace. That's inconvenient. I always say to people who are limerent on somebody, and it does sound like you're limerent because you're now obsessing on his social media and stuff. So that's true. It's crossed over into a, uh, you know, your brain is just doing chemicals that are making you addicted right now. And hope is the dope with limerence where you feel sad, you want, you want to get some hope going. And so you arrange things to bump into him or look at social media, just like, I need some hope. I need some hope. I need hope that my feelings will be reciprocated so that I can get through this night, you know, so that I can get through this weekend, this thing I can't face. So you try to initiate everything again. And by this time, he's really distancing himself and it's obvious he doesn't want to spend time with you anymore. So, okay. Tough love chapter three of answering this letter for you, Star. Um, yeah, it's uncomfortable when you, when you get that energy for people. You, I'm just going to use your own language. You said you kind of slipped into a delusion and it does sound like that. And I know it's like, we all do it. It's, it's so understandable. You're not a bad person. You're just having a symptom that's particularly devastating and will mess up your life. And so I'm really urging you to stop, to do what you, to take action against this symptom so that you can stop being limerent. And you said, sometimes he'd be nice, then he'd be distant and cold. I'm just going to lay money on. I think um, he really didn't want things to be bad. And then when you were friendly to him and you acted like everything was okay, he was like, oh, phew, good. Everything's okay. So he would be nice. Then you'd get hope and that sort of obsessive side would kick in. And whether you acted on it or not, people have a nervous system. They feel your energy no matter what you're saying. And if he was feeling that kind of stalker, I don't care what you're saying, I'm going to get you, you know, that thing. It's, it's a frightening feeling to be on the receiving end of that. It's uncomfortable. It's invasive. And so then he would shut it down again. 
And that is my best guess. I don't know. I don't have his side of the story, but that's my best guess. I, I, you'll see a lot of people on this channel, and really they've been watching a lot of videos about they're a narcissist, they're a narcissist. That's a phase of healing where you can't yet really like look at your own side of the street. And so I just know people are going to go, that guy's a malignant narcissist. He's a predator. He's using you. But I'm, I just doubt it. I think that's actually quite rare. Um, it's so much more helpful to just realize, hey, he's a person, he's a person who, you know, was sort of clumsy emotionally, he wasn't sure what he was doing, he realized he wasn't into it, it could happen to anybody, and it hurt you, but we got to kind of like remove him from the story now, because all he is now is somebody who hurts you, whether he wants to or not, he can't be with you, because that's not where he's coming from. Um, and yes, you can start a healthy relationship, but you know what? This is like the last thing that people want to hear when they're limerent because it's like, okay, can you give me something even better, like really fast, like, like at four o'clock today, <laughs> right? And it's like, no, it might take a year or two to like do some healing. Whether you date or not, I encourage you to stop having contact with this guy. And uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a good path forward for you if you're working in the same place. And it's sad, but true. You're the one who can't deal with it right now. So ask yourself, can you change jobs? It would be so helpful for your healing if you could. And I realize in a few cases, people don't really have control over that. You know, maybe they're in the military or maybe they have a unique skill or, you know, maybe they're, they're the only English speaking person on an island, you know, they're the only in a little tiny group, you know, and they can't go anywhere and there's a commitment. But for the most part, you can change jobs and it would be so powerful and positive for you to do that because the most important thing you can do right now is get that guy out of your mind. Right now, it's your, it's your wounds that are making him seem attractive to you because he's not, he's, he's terrible for you. He's, he's like a guy not into you. He's a guy who brings up pain in you all the time. He's like poison. It's like eating snail poison. You know, don't eat it. You don't want to eat it. You, your mind is going to say, eat it, eat it. It'll be different this time, but it's not. So the more you can just like get out of that, just get out of there, that would be really helpful. And then no contact, no more texting. Don't say goodbye. Nothing is necessary. And then discipline yourself to stop talking about him. Every time you talk about him, you activate all the brain chemistry. Every time you talk about him, that part of you is going to try to find hope in the whole thing. And that distorted thinking will come in and go, ah, oh, gotcha. I'm going to distort this. No, there is hope. There is hope. You know, he's so wonderful in this way. I'm going for it. You don't want to give, don't give that any space. Like just logically, this is a dead end for you. So getting it out of your mind and out of, just don't talk about it. That's a lot of, you're going to have, if you have women friends, that's what women friends do is talk about the guys who hurt them, talk about the guys they hate, talk about the guys they hope will like them. You know, we talk about guys, but this guy has to just, just take him out of, the, out of your, you know, just try to get him off of your mind. And then the last, the last frontier is in your mind and your thoughts about him. So this is what I suggest to you. You'll give yourself a half hour twice a day when it's okay to talk to him. Actually, better yet, 15 minutes twice a day where you can think about him. Don't talk to other people. Don't keep trying to make this real. Don't try to get other people's validation of it, um, except if they are people who are actively on the road to recovery with you. I'll get to that in a minute. But you stop thinking about it. So one thing you can do that's more productive than just sitting there thinking, because what you're doing, you know, if you're sitting there going into the whole thing of stalking, what's happening is you're going into rumination, you know, fantasy rumination, trying to think of scenarios. Maybe if I said this, maybe if I did 10 days of not speaking and then all of a sudden I showed up in this really nice dress and then I acted very aloof, but then I laughed and then he got jealous. You know, you're always like calculating, right? How do I, 
reel him in? How do I do this? Anything but just being myself. When you are yourself, most of these things, they just sort of will drift away from you like, you know, like a little floating thing on a stream. They just drift away from you. And you and there it's like, oh, it's getting out of reach. You want to jump in, you want to save it, but it's drifting away. So you stop talking about them, you stop thinking about them, but you can, if you use my daily practice techniques, you may know about that. I talk about it endlessly in my videos, but uh, it's a very specific writing technique, meditation. There's a free course I teach. You can, uh, it's, there's a link to it down below in the description section or go to my website, free course, daily practice. It takes about an hour to learn and try the techniques for the first time. And then, you know, you keep practicing them twice a day. And you're going to find it really like, it gives you finally like a really safe outlet for all that stormy, the stormy thinking inside. And I do it twice a day all the time anyway, on good days and bad. It's not always storming in here, but why it's not always stormy in here is because I'm always sort of doing my hygiene, you know, it's just like my stormy thoughts, fear and resentment, getting them out, making space for something new, which is very, very healing. As a person who had childhood trauma, you need loving people in your life. And those are not likely to, you know, occasionally people just find their partner very early in life and they have their person. But that does tend to be a little bit like a hermetically sealed thing. A really nice path is to make friends. This would be women friends. And they are and finding women friends who are like you, healing from trauma and working on cultivating a better way to date and um, eventually end up in a relationship that they would really, the kind they really want. So that's, those are the kinds of friends. There's, there's friends who go out drinking. There's friends who just sit around and smack talk about stuff. But I recommend to you, you find ones who are really on the path and you can find them in 12 step meetings. You can find them in my membership program. You can, uh, uh, you know, the thing about 12 step programs is if there's going to be meetings in your town and you can have face-to-face -face meetings with them. And a lot of people who go to 12-step also use my daily practice or, you know, participate in my membership stuff because we're focusing on trauma specifically. And there's a little bit of that. There's a program called Adult Children of Alcoholics and Other Dysfunctional Families. There's Al-Anon. If you are blessed with an addiction or alcoholism, there's very strong fellowships for that. But there you would find people... Um, and perhaps a sponsor, somebody who would kind of mentor you in how to do this, that would be so helpful to try to basically learn the things that other people must have learned when they were kids by their parents being really present, teaching them one little incident at a time. It's like, oh, don't talk that, you know, when somebody treats you that way, do this. You know, for those of us who just didn't get any of that and had to make it up as we went along, like feral cats, 12 step is fantastic. And, um, so, and we'd of course love to have you in our group. So I hope that helps, Star. One super important relationship skill is the ability to see clearly who is emotionally available and who is not. Now, if you grew up with parents who neglected you or were missing from your life, you may have developed a blind spot where your red flag detector should be flashing in lights across your face. This is not the one. This is not the person. They don't want to spend time with you. They don't love you. They can't be with you. They don't want to be with you. And they, they can't be a partner, <laughs> right? If they can't even participate in ordinary communication about how the relationship is going, that is a cornerstone of having a relationship. They're not available. Being able to be emotionally open with each other about feelings and expectations is a non-negotiable thing in a committed relationship. But for people with childhood PTSD, the fear of having the conversation 
coupled with a willingness to just sort of spackle over the holes where someone else won't communicate with you, this will lead time and time again to hurt and grief. And what you thought was love didn't have a structure, it turns out, to support love. The structure for that was all up in here, where you imagined what it could be like, but you knew on some level that's not what it was. You knew that if you talked about what you really want or asked questions about where the relationship was going, it would ruin everything. Okay, that's a sign. So sterilizing a relationship in this way, bleaching out any truth because truth would make it disintegrate, that's also a form of limerence. Limerence is a state of obsessive or infatuated love that can only thrive when it's fed by longing. Unrequited love, you know, fantasy love, lost love, these are all perfect mediums for an infection of limerence to flourish. So starving a relationship of truth and communication is like starving it of oxygen. It's like when you take a little Tupperware container of black beans in the fridge and you just push it to the back for a few weeks. It goes bad. Do not open that container. Throw it out, right? Don't let that happen to your relationship. It needs air. Love that can't breathe prevents you from finding love that can, from finding real love. Love needs truth. Love needs you to be real. And I can teach you how to build up your emotional muscles for that. I have a letter today from a man I'll call Charles. And he writes, got the fairy pencil. Okay. Hey, Anna, I have CPTSD. My dad was physically and emotionally abusive, narcissistic, and completely unavailable throughout my childhood. And my mom enabled the abuse. Ooh, bad setup there. I was queer and in a really hostile, homophobic environment. I've never been able to hold down a relationship for a few months, and I've never been in any sort of relationship where we sat down and made a commitment of any kind. My first boyfriend resented it when I wanted to pin down the terms of our relationship, and I've become phobic about having the talk ever since. I'm gonna circle a few things and come back on a second reading. I recently began seeing an older man He's got so many of the things that I've been actively seeking in a relationship, but he's gun shy. He's a few years out from a nasty divorce with a malignant narcissist. And he's admitted that it has made him very protective of his time and very slow to move into a serious relationship. Meanwhile, I'm going through a major career breakthrough that while excruciating has been really discombobulating. He's incredibly supportive. He's really proud of me. He's certain I have great success in my future. But since we began dating a little more seriously in the fall, and it's now six months later, it sounds like, I've only hung out with him in person three times. He's been going through a lot of work and he had a business trip recently, so I get it. The last time I saw him, about a month ago, I said that I'd like to see him in person more often and we still don't have the next get-together on the calendar. Just the other day we were flirting and he reciprocated again a desire to have sex, but never responded with a date when I asked him to let me know the where and when. So I'm finding myself a little disappointed. He still every once in a while voices disbelief that I'm into him and I've been really communicative about the fact that I am. I asked if there's anything I can do to make him feel more sure of it. And he said, no, I've been very clear. Obviously, given the age gap, there's a different level of need for sex, but still, I really don't feel satisfied with only seeing him once every couple of months. 
He lives about an hour away by public transit, so it is a petty, long-distance relationship. In my mind, the ideal scenario would be to set each other as our primary partner and set guidelines that cultivate trust and open communication with regard to our sex with other people. But it really does seem like he's not willing to move the needle himself here. And if he's interested in going deeper with me, I'd like to show more initiative. Is there a graceful, appropriate, and adult way to express my feelings here without rushing things? It's important to me that at a time when so much is uncertain in my life, whatever dating situation I'm in feels safe and secure and nurturing. At the moment, I'm feeling a little activated and hypervigilant, but then this is probably the most mature and adult dating situation I've ever been in. So I don't want to foreclose on the opportunity to voice my feelings and see how he responds. More than anything, I want to be able to sit down with him and hash it out in a way that's productive and accommodating for both of us. And the idea of being like, we need to talk makes me feel nauseated. What do I do? Thank you. Charles. Okay. Charles, I'm going to see what I can do to help you here. Um, this is, yes, I, I hear the limerence here. So thank you for telling me about what happened when you were a kid, because I think that this explains a lot about why you are seeing what you're seeing, why some things look to you bigger than they are, and some things look to you not as big a deal as they are. And and that's what abuse and neglect does to you. So you had a first boyfriend who resented it whenever you wanted to pin down the terms of the relationship. And you've become phobic about having the talk ever since. All right, so what I'm hearing is that you have a very serious fear of abandonment. That if you are yourself and you have your own feelings and needs and hopes for a relationship, that somehow that will automatically get you rejected, that it's unacceptable. And the thing is, what you're saying you would like is to have a relationship where there are terms. And your terms are actually the most wide open. Like I usually don't even take letters from people who want to have some sort of polyamorous arrangement. I understand that like in the gay community, that's a little more common. It's not something I would ever be able to cope with. So I don't have experience to, to give you there. What I can see is that you're putting a lot of stock in somebody. Okay, so here's the thing. The guy will only see you every two months and you are developing a vision of a future with him where you hope to be like primary to each other. And you're also being extremely understanding about how he works. He had a bad relationship in the past. You know, he's very busy. What it all adds up to is he's unavailable. He is just not emotionally available. It sounds like he would like to have occasional sex. He's kind to you. His encouragement of you, I can tell it means something. This big career thing that's going on for you, it's a big deal. You had a breakthrough. You know, <laughs> this is very big. And I think sometimes with CPTSD and when we just didn't have that kind of support at home, we, we kind of crave to have people. And this guy being older than you, it's hard to ignore that, you know, he stands in as a father to just sort of approve of you and go, that's great. You know, I believe in you. I'm so glad you have this opportunity. He's standing more in that role of approver and he's not like standing in the role as partner. And the, the long distance, the every two months, the nothing on the calendar thing for a month. I'm not, I'm not hearing it. This sounds like, um, it sounds like your blind spot. 
for you, it's interesting because what you read this as is it's the most um, mature, sensible relationship you've ever had. And I, I'm guessing that it feels that way just because there's not a lot of screaming and yelling or drama. There's no drama. It's nice that there's no drama, but a mature relationship, here's what I want you to set your sights on. It's full of love. The person is in love with you, wants to be with you, is totally interested in what makes you happy. It wants to talk about the relationship too. I mean, it's, I, I'm calculating it's been like six months that you've been seeing this guy. Yeah, you get to talk about the relationship. You get to do that. If a relationship cannot bear that conversation of, of uh, to just like openly and honestly, you know, say the thing, you know what, you know what the fear is, right? When you have a pretty good feeling that someone loves you and wants to be with you, it's not scary to have that conversation. The reason it's scary is because you know what the answer is. It's because you know it's just not going to go well. That's not how they feel. That's not what they want. And your abandonment wound doesn't want to face it and so can just jump through hoops to keep rationalizing why, oh no, actually this is sensible and, and I'm just being too needy or something. You're not being too needy. You're being sensible but you're attached to somebody who just wants this occasional fling. This is, this is just, he's not available. It's pretty clear. Mature and adult, mature and adult. Yeah, I'm just really gonna encourage you, Charles, to take the time to write this down. If you want, take my dating course, because that starts with like a guided process to write down what you really want. So you in your grown up self, and especially with all this wonderful stuff happening in your career, uh, you get to dream of your ideal relationship. Like what would make you feel most loved and supported to become completely who you really are? What would that be? And don't be afraid to name it. You don't have to tell anybody yet, but don't be afraid to write it down and name it because by naming it, you begin to open up the possibility in, in yourself of seeing yourself in that future. And when you, once you see it, you can't really unsee it. And it makes it a lot harder to crap fit your way into these, not into a non relationship with somebody who's, you know, it's just, this is, I gotta say, this guy sounds, I mean, I'm questioning, is he married or something? Is he hiding you from somebody? This is way too, something's really not right here. So I encourage you, Charles, be more communicative. This thing where you get quiet, I have no doubt you learned it in childhood, not to set off your dad, right? not to set off all the abuse. Don't be gay. Don't, don't say anything. Don't make him mad <laughs> and, you know, just disappear and then everyone will love you. But did that work? No. And it won't work now. Somebody's going to love you because of who you are, of who you really are, you know, and even the funky parts, the parts where you're difficult or, you know, kind of traumatized or emotionally kind of eh, sometimes, right? Cause that's who we are. That's who we are. And we still get to be loved. And especially when we work on the parts that are hard for other people, we can be easier to be with. It's not always easy to be with somebody with CPTSD. So that's what I suggest you do. Write down what you want, get very clear, set your new bar at I get to communicate how I feel. It is never too soon to communicate how you feel. If you're getting really attached to somebody then, and you have not had any conversation about what, you know, what they're interested in with you, you're basically taking whole you know, chunks of your life, of your time on earth, and just giving them away for something that you didn't actually want. You can, you can reserve that, that precious part of you, your time, your love. You can reserve it for somebody who fits what actually does make you happy. But I think you don't know that yet. I think you're not in touch with that yet. You're a little bit worried about not setting other people off like your first boyfriend, you know, just flipped out on you.
that was him. That was then. Don't worry. There's good people who do want communication. So I hope that helps you, Charles. Um, we need to talk is, is our sacred. That's sacred. Those are, those are powerful words of love. We need to talk. I'd like to talk. So you get to own those. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.